So let's get on with the matter at hand. Uh, so Vincent Dillard, uh is a tremendous, has had a tremendous call on markets. He's probably not as well known as some other uh, observers. He's not as commercial, perhaps, or perhaps he just hasn't been in it as long as others. But I've been following Vincent for uh, a while now and I'm just enthralled with uh, his work. And I'm really um, pleased that he's with us here today. Uh, he has a variant perception uh, about um, what's going on with inflation and um, why the transitory crowd may still yet be in for more disappointment. But even more interesting, as um, was put in the solution, was put in the title of the room, inflation is a solution. And I didn't just put that in there to be provocative. That's actually um, the title of one of Vincent's most recent works, and it's quite interesting. So... We can go into my rant later, but I want to get on with Vincent right now. And uh, Vincent, welcome. Really glad that you're here. Um, you might perhaps start off by uh, explaining um, just who you are and um, and what you do. Vincent, please take it away. Please unmute yourself, Vincent. Hi, George. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for the, the kind word of introductions. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm the global macro strategist for uh, StoneX, uh, which is a global financial service firm. And um, as part of my job, I get to write on pretty much anything I want. I mean, that's the definition of global macro. Um, and uh, talk to institutional, institutional investors. And really, my focus has been uh, on um, kind of understanding secular macro forces like I, I'm not trying to time the market on an intraday basis or even a weekly basis on a monthly basis. I'm trying to get one big idea that most people get wrong. And for the past three years, that big idea has been inflation. And I think that's still the case today. I mean, you see it after the, the reaction to CPI report last week. I think the transitory crowd is still not dead. And I think most people do not understand inflation. I mean, they view it as some sort of aberration, an accident, you know, it's because of COVID, it's because of Russia, it's because of reopening, whatever, but they are not willing to spend the time to understand not only the deep causes of inflation, but also its effect. And, and I think that's one of the ways I differ from the, a lot of the inflationistas on Twitter, you know, guys with, you know, basically trying to sell you gold at the end of the day. And I mean, I love gold, no problem, but I, I think there is more to inflation than just, oh, the government printed too much money. Uh, and we really need to think of inflation as a tool to uh, handle the debt crisis and rebalance the economy for generational inequalities. And if we see through these lenses, we can see that a long period of inflation, not crazy high, like around 5 7% for a decade, is actually the medicine that the U.S. economy needs. And I think that's the market is trying to fix itself right now. So it's painful, but it is a good thing. So, Vincent, as we get into this, before we get into this, you mentioned you've been on this inflation uh, theme for three years now. I totally get it now. <laughs> this year in 2022, there are a lot of sort of, how shall we say, macro tourists who jump on the bandwagon, uh, jump on the bus for the ride. Oh, yeah, inflation's going up. I heard about it on CNBC, blah, 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 blah. But Oh, my God. How did you have the foresight to get interested in this idea three years ago? Maybe you could explain how, how that happened. 
Well, the immediate cause was Bloomberg Business Week. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I think it was May 2019. Um, they had a cover, and you could see a little dinosaur, deflated dinosaur. And oh, it said yeah. It, oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. The, the death of inflation. And that was almost to the day, 40 years after they had published the death of equities in late 1979, which, you know, if you remember, was the end of the secular bear market for equity and the beginning of, you know, the biggest bull market in equities the world has seen. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was all this crap of like, oh, technological progress, uh, you know, very um, Kathy Woodsy-like, right? Oh, like, you know, the cars are going to drive themselves. And I mean, it was um, kind of so ridiculous that I thought, okay, we, we, we need to talk about inflation because there's just, um, the consensus had become so one-sided that, you know, the 2% target was too hard to achieve. And, and the fight for central bankers would be to create inflation. <laughs> uh, and um, I mean, I, I can go in a little bit if you want as, as to like my thinking back then uh, on the secular causes for inflation. Would you like me to do that for, for a bit? Yeah, yeah, go into it for a little bit. But, but obviously, the, the, you already answered the key question, which was it was that headline. We, we all know that cover. And um we have the great John Roke. He's in the second row of the chart life. He's a master of uh, magazine covers. And John, once we get to the Q&A, I'd love for you to jump in here. But that, that, that's really interesting. So, okay, so, so so the magazine cover got your attention. But there's a long way between trying to be a wise guy and say, oh, yeah, let's look at that stupid magazine cover. And then actually teasing out a thesis that makes sense. So where did you where did you go with that as a trigger? Like, how did your thinking develop? Well, it really came down to, you know, to understand inflation today, you have to understand the great disinflation of the past 30 years. Uh, and then you have to ask yourself uh, whether these things are likely to repeat themselves. So to me, there were three forces for the great disinflation of, uh, of the past 30 years. Uh, one was um, the China shock, if you will. Uh, opening of the Chinese economy in the, in the early 90s, devaluation of the RMB by 70% in 1994. And then these devaluations were exported for East Asia, they had the East Asian crisis. So suddenly you have 2.5 billion people with massively undervalued currencies, which are producing and subsidizing consumption in the West. I mean, this is the first time we heard the term great moderation, 1995 in the U.S., and of course, Greenspan being Greenspan, he thought that's because he was such a genius that he had killed inflation. No, it's just, you know, cheap stuff coming from China and Walmart. So you got cheap goods there. Um, that's the first force. The second force was cheap capital. Uh, this was the era of the, the big surpluses. Uh, you had the commodity surpluses, recycling U.S. Treasury market, the Asian surpluses, which, you know, because they were repressing demand domestically, they were sending all the surpluses they were accumulating into the U.S. Treasury market, bringing yields down, making capital easily available to, to production. So that was subsidy to capital, subsidy to goods. And then the last one was the tequila crisis in Mexico, 1994-1995, which sent uh, close to 12 million Mexican workers uh, across the northern borders with a massively deflationary impact on wages in, in services and, and agriculture. So cheap goods, cheap labor, cheap services, yes, your inflation, the inf you know, 
inflation rate was was going down, 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 down. Uh, now, looking back in 2019, you could already see that on the good side, you know, we're in the middle of the trade wars with China, uh, it's, you know, the, 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 and then very more importantly than that, the Chinese demography was changing. Uh, the reason China did what it did in the early 90s is because it had no choice. Uh, you had about 20 million new uh, entrants into the workforce in China in the early 90s. They had a big baby boom between the end of the Cultural Revolution and the start of the one-child policy. So that was in the late 70s. So all these, people, all these kids entered the labor force in the 90s. So that's why China had to devalue the currency and open up the economy. Today, they face the exact opposite problem, where their labor force population is going to shrink by about 10 million a year. So they will not need this cheap currency. They will not need this crazy industrial base. And they will not need, ultimately, to subsidize consumption in the West to create jobs domestically. Uh, so that's gone. Uh, the second one is cheap capital. Um, well, if you look at uh, how foreign central banks are, are acting, they, they're no longer accumulating U.S. treasuries. Uh, if anything, they have to sell them in order to return the currencies or to buy commodities. Uh, we are seeing some sort of a renationalization of finance. I mean, this this era of uh, you know sovereign wealth fund and cross border investment is coming to an end. Uh, also, for demographic reasons, uh, you know, if you look at a country like Germany, uh, twenty years ago, they you know their biggest generation was in their in their mid-40s, they were peak earnings, peak savers, and now they're retiring. So when you retire, instead of accumulating assets, you start selling assets. So that puts pressure on the global cost of capital. Uh, and then the third one was, was Mexico. That was really a one-time event. Um, you know, you, you had the combination of the tequila crisis, very strong birth rate in Mexico in, in the 80s, uh, which, you know, led to, to this uh, need to export labor, and, and all these things have changed. Uh, actually, the, the the net migration flow from Mexico is now negative. Uh, so, yeah, you no longer have your cheap labor, you no longer have your cheap cost of capital, you no longer have your cheap goods. Uh, it followed to me that inflation should increase. Okay, so that was well in advance. That's brilliant. That's well in advance of the pandemic. So you take that framework, and now you layer in the pandemic. And... You know, how does that change the story? Does it make the inflate the secular inflation story even more acute because of uh, contraction? I'm just guessing. I don't really know because of a contraction in the in the labor participation right here in the United States because of the logistical problems. Um, you then add in the Russia crisis and so on and so forth. So, okay, so you start with this framework from 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 two three years ago, as you just explained. Now roll forward. How are the events of the last year or two? changed your thinking has it made you more convinced less convinced it's more of a problem it's less of a problem so so fast forward on your thinking please well as with many things uh covid you know has just accelerated uh changes that were brewing underneath the surface so um i mean it's you know you can always do counterfactual right you cannot prove them but I think if we hadn't had COVID, we would have seen a slow pickup in inflation. Like we would not be at eight percent, seven point seven today. We'd be at four. Uh, and COVID really just, you know, by, by, by uh, creating all this havoc, just sped up that transition. Um, and I, to me, it was obvious that COVID was going to be inflationary from the start. I mean, 
it, what was shocking was that the market thought it was going to be deflationary. I mean, what did we do? We we broke up the global economy. We broke up supply chains. Uh, we forced people to stay home, cut all the factories, and send people money so that they could spend. So you constrain supply and you massive you explode the deficits through, through monetization. I mean, that was textbook experiment if you wanted to boost inflation that's that's exactly what you would do right you tell people stop working i'm going to give you money instead uh, the fact that the market could not see that in in early, in, in march of april of 2020 really keeps amazing me uh hey, if i could interrupt for one second to listen to you explain that it's like so obvious but why wasn't it obvious to the market and all of us in 2020 how do you explain that uh, I, I think there was, uh, you know, for, for 40 years, inflation had been falling. And every time you see a crisis, a macro shock, it was always deflationary. Uh, 08, uh, the European debt crisis, uh, the, the repo freeze, the Christmas. I mean, at the end of the day, everything that happened, no matter what the shock was, uh, meant that we'd see... Uh, lower inflation and more monetary easing and that you should buy long-term bonds. So um, I think that's what people did almost reflexively. Um, and, and then there was all this, uh, um, you know, there, there was all this fear in the market about, I mean, remember back in April, we, we didn't know the economy would reopen as quickly as it did. Uh, so I, I could understand a little bit of the flight to safety and that pushed people into long-term treasuries. Uh, away from from inflation sensitive assets. I mean, you had it made sense for commodities to sell off to some extent, you know, because we, you know, we're gonna, you know, global oil demand collapsed, uh, demand for construction was gonna collapse. So there was a deflationary element to COVID on the commodity side, uh, but it was very short lived, uh, and, and it was very clear to me that the second round effect would be massively deflationary. Got it. Okay, so fast forward to where we are today. Um, obviously, you have a framework. There's a context here, which is not just based off of something you read in today's Wall Street Journal. It's part of a bigger story. And so, um, and, and by the way, I recommend everyone to listen to uh, Vincent's, if he doesn't get enough of Vincent today, Vincent recently did a, uh, a podcast um, with Kevin Muir, uh, uh, which was quite good. And so I, I thank you for that, Vincent. So, so really, I, I'm really, really, really impressed with the rigor of your arguments. So right here, right now, um, given the context, given that backdrop, um, you know, the transitory crowd is, is running around, you know, high-fiving each other. And based on the market action of the last week or two, you think, you know, it's all good. Um, what do you say to that? Um, well, first of all, I am not an inflation max, maximalist. I, I, do be, I do agree with the general shape of, of the curve. Like I, I do think inflation, the, the, the local peak at least, was, was at 9.1 print we had for, for June, and that the, the U.S. CPI will come down in the next coming months. I mean, I doubt that this will be the ultimate peak. I think there will be a second wave of inflation later down the road, but... At least, as far as we're concerned, uh, I don't deny the fact that you know the U.S. economy is disinflated. Um, what I question is the 
the speed at which this will happen, uh, and then how low we can go. Uh, the speed, uh, I, I think, you know, you, it's funny. When, whenever we have inflation beat the consensus, there's no shortage of analysts to, to go on there and, and uh, on CNBC and, and, and take apart the CPI. And, well, if you take out the used car and the lumber, and basically if you take, all the, if you take out the prices that went up, you know, the rest was flat. Uh, you don't see that when it surprises the downside, so I'm going to do it here. Uh, a big part of the relatively small miss we had last week came from uh, healthcare services, and especially health insurance. And that's just an accounting trick. I mean, this is the way uh, the BLS computes uh, health insurance costs is based on the profits of the insurers, which were <laughs> boosted during COVID because people didn't go to the doctors. That normalized in 2021. They did that adjustment for October. So really, it tells you nothing about what's actually going on with healthcare costs. Uh, if you actually look at wages in the healthcare sector, they're rising by 7.5% year over year, and it accelerated in, in, in October versus September. And that kind of brings me to my more long-term point about the CPIs. Don't, don't get obsessed with any month release. I mean, either way, by the way, even if we have higher inflation, hotter or cooler inflation, you know, people are annualizing the month over month change. I mean, they're doing all sorts of stupid stuff to fit their prior beliefs in there. I mean, you know, it, it's a quirky theory. The CPI is a statistical contract with a ton of adjustment. Um, so don't read too much in any single one reading. What matters at the end of the day is wages. Uh, and that's why I'm skeptical that inflation will fall as aggressively as the consensus expects because we are still seeing 6 7% increase in wages across the board and it's not slowing down uh, so yeah we may have things that will help like base effect in the commodity sector uh, at some point you're going to see uh, some relief on the rents because rents are falling but if people are making more money uh, inflation is going to be sticky and, and to me that will be kind of the, the surprise of 2023 is that inflation will not fall below you know, let's say if, Five four percent, and, and and my secondary point would be that's a good thing. We want people to make more money. We want wages to go up, and I think the U.S. economy can very well take it if we have, you know, four five percent inflation for the next five ten years. It's not the worst. I mean, historically, actually, it's been quite good for growth to have slightly uh, above average inflation. Vincent, could you speak a little bit to in the wage in, in the labor market, looking at wages, um, the participation rate, demographics? I mean, I've, I've read a lot. Of them, all have. I know there's been a point made about how the participation rate went down. It's come back up a bit, but still, participation rate's lower than it was. And you know, viewed through that lens, I mean, just the labor market, you'd say the economy's overheating. So, could you speak a little bit specifically about the labor market and what changes um, there were in the participation rate and why and, and, and why that's going to be an ongoing problem? Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, that is indeed the, the heart of the matter is, is the labor market. Forget about, you know, the, the, the used car, the lumber, the, the plane tickets. I mean, if you want to understand inflation, it's a labor market phenomenon. Um, I think the big question for the labor market is we short 7 million workers. If you compare the size of the U.S. labor force uh, compared to, to where we were you know, before COVID, there's this 7 million gap. 
7 million workers are missing. And whether you think they're going to come back or you, you think it's structural will, to some extent, determine your outlook on inflation. The, the Fed's first reaction, and I would argue their big mistake in 2021, was to think that nothing had changed that these 7 million workers were chilling at home, watching some Netflix, collecting some stimmies on their couch, but then as soon as the money would run out, they would go back and, and take their job uh, and, and everything would be normal. That was the, um, if you will, the Neil Kashkar review. Um, if you remember uh, back in, uh, in 2018, uh, when the Fed first started to hike rates, uh, there was this, this uh, debate at the Fed between the hawks uh, Powell and um, Kaplan, I think, back then, uh, won the hockey side. And then Neil Kashkari was arguing, oh, no, don't raise rates un- until the labor market has fully normalized. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, Neil Kashkari was probably right. The, the Fed may have overhiked in, in 2018. But the result of them making that mistake led them to make the other mistake the other way uh, after COVID. It's like, oh, let's not do anything until we have a fully normalized labor market. And, and if you listen to the, uh, the FOMC transcript from that, every meeting they kept repeating, well, the participation rate will come back up and yada, yada. And, and these things never happened. And they never happened because people were not at home watching Netflix. Um, so I mentioned 7 million workers are missing. Half of them are early retirement. So compared to pre-COVID, if you look at the, the retirement projections for baby boomers, you have about an extra two to three million uh, extra retirement in 2020, 2021. And this is the direct product of the Fed's action, right? They, they inflated the bubble so big that people no longer need to work. You know, they, they, you know if you plan on retiring, like, okay, I, I want to have X in my savings account. And they got there faster and the house was worth more. The stocks were worth more. So people were like, okay, I don't need to work anymore. Plus, you know, people need to take care of little kids at home because we, we shut everything down. So, some people just dropped off because they could. Uh, so that's, that's the happy reason. Uh, the less happy reason is, is uh, uh, health. Uh, we have a, an obesity problem in the U.S. We have about 40% of the population that's obese. And with COVID, people, people took on average 15 pounds during the lockdown. Uh, so that makes it a lot harder to do a lot of jobs. And, and if you look at the, the jobs where the, uh, the, the, the market is the tightest, it's the things where you need to be able to stand up. Uh, waiter, hospitality, construction, uh, retail. Uh, and, and these were positions that we used to fill with, with Mexicans who, who are no longer coming, coming in part of COVID. So now we're discovering in horror that, that the, the physical state of the U.S. population is very poor. Uh, you add to this the kind of mental health, stress, opioid issues uh, that we had with COVID. And, and that probably knocked down another 2 million workers who are physically unable to work. Um, and then the last part on the labor market, which I think the Fed has totally missed, is the rise of the gig economy. Um, I think, the, you know, if you think about the, uh, the waiters that were let go in February of 2020 with no notice, hey, we're shutting down the restaurant, goodbye. Um, they didn't just stick around and waited for the call back. I mean, after one year of lockdown, they'd moved on. And while the service economy was shutting down, 
the, the, the gig economy was booming, you know, whether you're going to be like an Uber driver, a DoorDash delivery worker, uh, Instagram influencer, a YouTube creator, uh, OnlyFans creator with quotation mark. Uh, you had this, this new avenue uh, where you could actually make good money uh, on much more flexible schedule uh, that was growing very fast. And, and, and the arbitrage is obvious. I mean, where I am in San Francisco, an, an Uber driver makes, makes close to 50 bucks an hour. Now take down you know, $10 for gas, $10 for maintenance, that's 30 Still way better than the minimum wage of $15. Uh, so all these, to me, a lot of the people, and that was something that was going on before COVID, but that COVID accelerated and you can very well see that in tax collection. That's that's a uh, a data set that I track intensely. Is the daily treasury statement it is posted on the uh, on the treasury website, and you can see on any given day how much in taxes people are paying, and you can see the origin of these taxes. And you can see that for most of the past five years, all the growth has come in individual income tax collection, but not the withheld kind. So, like, not from your primary labor, from your primary job. You, this has exploded by 50% last year, which was only 50% over the year before. And to me, this is the rise of the gig economy. And this is something that the Fed missed because the Fed uh, is, uh, you know, using kind of legacy tool like, you know, the, the BLS surveys that, that only look at the formal economy. And, and, and for, for 10 years now, this is not where the growth has been. The growth has been in the gig economy. Right. And so... Um, there's been much, I'm, I'm trying to find a tweet right now as you're speaking. There's been much made of uh, very highly visible layoffs of late, uh, you know, Snapchat and Facebook and this, that, and whatever. I'll, I'll put some tweets up in a second. And some people are saying, aha, see, the layoffs are all here. But uh, I'll just read from this one tweet from the other day from Carl Quintanilla, quoting uh, Goldman Sachs, and I'll, I'll put this in the, in the nest in a second. Tech layoffs are not a sign of an impending recession. The unemployment would rise by less than 0.3%, even in the inconceivable event that all workers employed in the internet publishing, broadcasting, and web search portal industry are immediately laid off. This is exactly what you're talking about, Vincent. And so um, you have that on the one hand. These are you know high-paying jobs, and they're very visible. But on the other hand, you were speaking of, of, of many of the uh, labor-intensive jobs, many in the so-called uh, blue-collar uh, sectors of the economy. And as we get a, uh, the economy's reopened and we get a switch in consumption from goods to services, that just aggravates the, uh, uh, the wage situation. So um, I guess what leads up to a question, Vincent, um, you know, companies um, are very reluctant to shed labor, given that uh, attracting and retaining labor has been so difficult uh, in this economic cycle. And unless and until they start um, uh, suffering on the on the income line, in other words, as long as profit, as long as profits are okay, as long as they're not recession, as long as profits are okay, it's totally logical that they'll continue to bid for labor. So, my question to you is, and and, I, and this is I get into to big disagreements with people, a necessary but not sufficient condition to uh, kill inflation, to 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 really put the kibosh on these wage gains is to, you know, have a big decline in corporate profits, i.e. a recession. And people want to believe that we can somehow thread the needle. So I'll, I'll form it. I'll, I'll just, I know I'm random I'm on a rant right here, but there, there is a serious question. 
how likely is it that we can get a slowdown in the wage gains without a proper recession? In other words, you watch a CNBC crowd and they're like, oh, you know, we'll have to slow down, we'll have this glide path. They'll be like Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. And used car prices will go down and people just ask for a little less money and so on and so forth. To me, it seems very far-fetched, but I defer to you. What do you say to that, Vincent? Uh, I'm in complete agreement with, with everything that you said and then the quote that you read at the beginning. Uh, just on the tech layoffs, I mean, I, I live in San Francisco, so uh, I mean, I, I see it. I mean, I, the amount of overhiring that took place in 2020, 2021 is insane. I mean, it, it, the, the, the head count at the, you know, Apple, Google, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, more than doubled since 2019. I mean, I have friends who are like managing directors and um, uh, managers at Google. They told me they couldn't do their job in 2021 because all they were doing were interviewing because they had this crazy uh, growth target, you know, and it was the same space, right? It was, uh, uh, you know, oh, we're gonna we're gonna grow our uh, uh, enterprise cloud, you know, by X percent. And Google was saying that, Amazon was saying that, Microsoft, and they were all hiring as if they would have a hundred percent of the market. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, now you're seeing some of that come off, but it's a fraction, a tiny fraction compared to how much they overhired before. Um, so, and, and to your point, there, there is a bit of a mismatch, right? I mean, if I were to caricature, but I, I don't think the caricature is that far off. Um, the people who are being let go of, of big tech companies right now are, are the product managers who posted TikTok videos, you know, where, where you see them, Hey, it's 8 a.m. and I'm going to go my morning yoga routine and you know, I, I may show up at the office because today's Avocado Tuesday or, or whatever, like that. <laughs> Keep going. I love it, Vince. Keep going. You have another career as a comedian. Go for it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. But you know what I'm saying? Like, basically, the kind of the Gen Z millennial over pampered who's like, uh, you know, doing God knows what. I mean, how, how many product managers does Facebook need? I mean, um, I don't even know what they do. I mean, I, my understanding is that they uh, they tell somebody in India to change the color of a button. Uh, but anyway, so these are these are the these are the people who are being let go now. Um, as you mentioned, the, the the shortage is in kind of blue collar profession. I mean, you need uh, plumbers, you need welders, uh, you need waiters, uh, you need uh, farm workers. And I just don't see, even the numbers don't match, by the way, because the number is still tiny. But even, if, you know, they're not going to go start, you know, picking fruit. Uh, so, no, I, I don't see that getting better. I don't think the tech layoffs, I mean, the tech layoffs are, you know, people talk a lot about them because we're all part of the same class, right? I mean, everybody knows, you know, uh, the, 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 the finance professional um are we, we, we're a lot closer to, to the people who are getting laid off right now than we were, you know, when it was like, you know, construction workers after a wait, like nobody cared about them uh, because we don't, you know, we don't know them. But so there's, there's that bias in, in the way things are being reported. Um, so, and, so, yeah, so, so, so Vincent, so, you know, I, I don't know, we, we, we've been talking a lot about inflation and whatnot. I don't know if you're, 
I don't think you're expecting a recession. So let's kind of like tie this a little bit together. So <clears throat> we've got this labor problem. I don't think you're expecting a recession, if I if I understood you correctly from the other podcasts I listened to. And then maybe tie that together in terms of the bigger picture, the title of the room and the title of your of, of, of your recent paper, that inflation is solution is a solution. So explain why how that's a solution and how not to, not to steal your thunder, but I, but the gist of it, I gather, was you know talking about increasing the purchasing power for the uh, the folks who need it, and maybe it's not so good for the for the volunteers and the folks who own assets. So maybe tie this all together, and, and what the what does the way forward look like to you? Yeah, so um, let me start with the recession. Um, you know, there may or may not be a recession, but I I don't really care at the end of the day. You know, if, if, if we have a recession, but the unemployment rate stays under 5% and people don't lose their job, who cares, right? It's the, you know, the Zen koan, right? If a, if a tree falls down the forest, no one's here to listen to, to hear it, does it make a sound? It'd be the same thing. Like, okay, if the NBER declares a recession one day, it may do that, but nobody's lost their job, who cares? Uh, I think if, if we do have a recession, it'd be a very unusual one. Uh, it'd be a recession where you, you don't see a lot of foreclosures, you don't see people lose their jobs, and, and I think consumption is going to remain strong throughout. Now, we may have a recession because, you know, the, the way GDP is constructed, you know, you have, a, you know, imports come in as a negative, you have inventory effects. So it's very possible that we get whatever the NBR needs to call that a recession, but it won't feel like one. Um, in general, if I, if I can summarize my outlook on the economy is that the economy is more resilient that's be, that it, than it's being given credit for. Uh, and we've seen that, by the way. I mean, the Fed is, you know, who would have thought that would be, you know, looking at a, you know, almost 5% of the two-year note and, and things are still mostly okay. I mean, the only thing that have popped are, you know, the Ponzi schemes in, in, in crypto, uh, insane real estate prices, uh, and then, you know, the, the dumbest uh, meme stocks. But, these are the things that the Fed wanted to pop. Uh, the economy is, as far as I can tell, kind of chugging along. Um, and I think it will keep chugging along because the, um, you know, the, the wealth effect, which is what the Fed is using to kind of solve the, uh, the crisis, is a very poor tool. Um, we saw that on the way up. Right? After a wait, basically the Fed's um, response has been uh, to pump up asset prices in order to increase consumption. And, and that took forever. It took 12 years. Uh, because you know, the more, if you give a lot more money to Mark Zuckerberg, well, not much is going to happen. Uh, conversely, Mark Zuckerberg's net worth is down by 75% for the year, but his consumption hasn't really dropped all that much. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the engine of the economy is kind of middle-class, working-class people, and this is this is still where wages are going up, and, and this is still where we have a, a lot of cash. If you look at cash balances, they, they have not normalized. Yeah, people are putting more stuff on the credit card, but there is room to go there. So I think the economy will keep surprising to the upside. Now, of course, if the Fed keeps hiking, at some point it will break things, but um, I would not say that's the default, uh, the baseline scenario. So on the economy, I remain of the view that things are going to be mostly okay uh, in, in the coming, uh, coming months. Uh, it may not be okay for capital markets, of course, because if the economy does well, then that means that, you know, the Fed remains 
uh, more hawkish for longer and that you need to keep repricing assets. Uh, but again, and that transition to my, my second point, I would argue that's a good thing. Um, you know, if you look at the, uh, um, the, the, the problem that, that we have across the West is a generational problem. Uh, we have an abnormally large population of boomers that has an abnormally large share of the national wealth that is valued at unrealistic prices. Uh, whether it's houses or stocks or bonds, uh, the assets are priced at a price that the young generation cannot afford. Uh, this is why, you know, Italian guys stay at their mom's house until they're 40, uh, not because they like the pasta, but because they cannot afford the flat in Milan. And what we need to organize in the next 10 years is the transfer of these assets from the boomers to the millennial and the Gen Zs. And that transfer is not working because the price is not right. And what we need to, to fix is the ratio of financial assets to labor. Again, keep in mind that young generation, they are trading labor in order to acquire assets. Old generation are trading assets in order to buy labor. Uh, and the terms of this trade has been really skewed by 40 years of disinflation, 40 years of falling interest rate, and bubble after bubble that has inflated the level of these assets. So what inflation is doing is that it's correcting this. Uh, it's inflating the value of the wage, at least on a nominal basis. Wages are going up. They're generally keeping pace with inflation. And then it is uh, um, reducing uh, the value of financial assets as we can, so that we can organize this transfer. So to me, it is the least painful solution to do that. Uh, you know, I'm French, so I, you know, there are other ways we could use, like beheading people or revolutions. Uh, but I, I, I prefer the inflationary way. That's absolutely brilliant, Vincent. Okay, so let's try to bring this together and and have some of the uh, folks in the audience weigh in with some questions. This has been this has really been very stimulating. So I always like to ask the question of the speaker: um, What does this mean for the average investor trying to figure out how he can preserve, if not increase, his uh, net worth going forward? Um, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. So. I'm not going to bias the witness. I'll just let you you go for it. What does this What does this mean to you? Your scenario, your outlook. What does it mean in terms of markets, uh, stocks, bonds, or within equities? Um, I, I know you have your your three pronged approach, which maybe you should speak about. How, what advice do you give the individual investor in terms of how he should uh, focus uh, his his efforts in terms of, of across asset classes and within asset classes? So it's generally a bearish uh, scenario, right? Because in my scenario, uh, monetary policy doesn't, doesn't get eased very much, if at all, next year. Rates stay higher for longer, and you have to reprice assets for a higher level of inflation, higher real rates, and higher term premium. So to me, there is, there is probably another you know, 20% of downside to, to stocks, uh, bonds, I mean, bonds, you're starting to see some value emerge there, especially in the short end. Uh, but in general, it's, it's pretty bearish on the 60-40 portfolio, uh, which is the default investment for, for most, most people who are in target date funds. Um, the solution that I had uh, envisioned um, earlier this year was what I call the Holy Trinity portfolio. Uh, it was a 100% equity portfolio, uh, and it was 
a third in a third in energy, a third in healthcare, a third in financial, and that that portfolio has done very well for the year. And the reason I constructed that way is because I wanted to be hedged against what I thought were the three major risks that that the economy faced. Uh, inflation was the biggest one, and the way you hedge against inflation is by having an overweight either directly on commodities or uh, commodity producing companies. At the time, energy was the obvious one, right? I mean, this is where you had the most cheapest valuation. Uh, and indeed, the energy sector has done very well. So one third in energy to hedge against inflation. Uh, the second third was healthcare. Um, healthcare is the best performing sector during recession. So I, I liked healthcare as a rec recession hedge. And I also liked it on a kind of valuation basis. This, this was the only sector where you, can, you could buy growth at a reasonable price. Basically, you were getting the same growth you'd be getting with Microsoft and Apple for about half the valuation with, with, with healthcare stocks. And I, I tend to be structurally bullish on healthcare for the next decade. I think healthcare is going to be to the 2020s what big tech was to the 2010s uh, because of demography, uh, because of changes in government policy, uh, and because also of the very poor state of, of, of health uh, in the U.S. population. Uh, so uh, energy, healthcare, and then the last one was financials. And the reason I wanted financials in the portfolio is because it's the only sector that has a positive correlation with yields. So when yields go up, financials go up. Um, if the yield curve steepens, financials do better because you know banks borrow short, lend long. Uh, and, and it's very hard to find this kind of correlation, right? It's very hard to find uh, stuff that goes up when yields go up. Uh, so financials hedge you against the risk of a hawkish Fed. So you, you, you look at this 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 portfolio, the Holy Trinity portfolio, uh, it's it's up about 7% for the year when the stock market is down by, by close to 20, and with very limited drawdowns. And the reason the drawdowns are limited uh, is because, um, uh, again, the portfolio is kind of naturally balanced. That's terrific, Vincent. Okay, so now let's um, let's turn it over to the, uh, to the audience. Absolutely brilliant, Vincent. I really, really enjoy your... Um, your perspective, who knows the futures making predictions is difficult always, but very interesting uh, insight. Okay. So, um, we're going to, the order, I'm going to, we're going to lead off with, uh, Gnostic followed by Phi Capital and then, uh, Recto Burns and then Stefan. So, uh, Gnostic, good to see you. What's on your mind, my friend. Gnostic, please unmute yourself. Oh, George, you stole my question. So I'll have to do, go back to my secondary question. Uh, Vincent, uh, one of the best presentations I've heard in a long time. I agree with almost every, well, with everything you said. Uh, in an unbiased mind, uh, my mind isn't working. I just got out of the gym. Uh, but the question, the question I have is, from what you're saying, it sounds like we're going to go into a disassociative recession that's not going to be normal. The disinflation, inflation simultaneously. Uh, countries, companies displaced, uh, disassociated income returns, someplace to hide. The, part, the question George just asked about where to, basically where to hide <clears throat> during all of this uh, was going to be one of my primary questions. But the secondary question of that is, if we keep this up, what are we going to do to the world economy? Uh, we've already got a number of uh, revolutions happening in other countries, the U.S. dollar increasing and, and rates increasing, although the dollar has been falling lately. Um, what's going to happen worldwide? Or aren't we going to create some pretty bad economic distortions in other countries? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I think I was more worried about that um, three weeks ago than I am now. Uh, 
Uh, it's kind of the, let's call it the, the Brent Johnson dollar milkshake uh, scenario, right? Where the Fed keeps hiking because it can, right? If you compare the, the, the Fed to the Bank of Japan or the European Central Bank, um, it's the only one which has the ability to, to kind of raise rates. Uh, and, and then as it does that, it starts to break things. And you certainly saw some of that happening, whether, you know, Sri Lanka or uh, Egypt, you know, countries going to the IMF and uh, as they were faced with also the, the impact of higher, pro uh, higher commodity food prices and energy prices. Uh, so that was a serious risk. I, I am a bit more optimistic now, uh, in part because of market action. And, you know, we, we had the big, uh, um, after Powell's big um, last meeting where he sounded really hawkish, very rapidly after that, we saw the dollar index actually go south. Um, we saw gold prices go up and we saw uh, the euro and other currencies rally. And my interpretation of that, which may, may or may not be correct, is that the market is kind of sniffing that at the end of the day, the Fed will kind of accept my scenario in, in mid-2023. Yeah, inflation will not have slowed as much as they would like, but it will be good enough. Like they will, you know, based on the current trajectory, inflation will fall to 4 or 5% by May of 2023. Even I agree with that. Now, by then, we should have the Fed funds rate at about 5%. Um, and, and to me, the Fed will do what... Uh, George W. Bush did after the Iraq invasion. You know, there was no WMD. Iraq was a mess. What did W do? He got a big aircraft carrier, put a mission accomplished banner, and called it a day. If I were the Fed, that's what I would do. I would say, hey, look, we raised the Fed funds rate to 5%. Inflation has fallen. We're done here. Thank you very much. Let's never talk about what happened in 2021 again. Uh, and, and that would be the, the pivot, not so much... The, the people that the market thinks of, which would, you know, cutting rates because there's a recession, but it would be instead, okay, I'm no longer hiking. I'm, I'm cool with inflation being at four or 5%. It's actually good for the U.S. economy, good for the world. Just live with that. And if that's the case, then that kind of removes that tail risk that you're mentioning of, of the dollar wrecking ball causing, you know, havoc everywhere, which, again, why? That, that's the main question I have, you know, to, to the 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 maximalists, oh, the Fed is going to keep hiking until it breaks things. Like, sure, it's a risk, but why would they do that? You know, we have the best job market in, in a generation. You finally see wage gains for uh, uh, minorities, for young people, for the uneducated. All the people who got screwed so badly for the past 20 years are finally doing well. Um, you know, why break that? And why break the world? Like, the dollar can break the world. Why would the Fed want to do that? To me, it seems so obvious that the the simple solution is like, okay, make sure we don't have, what you don't want to have is inflation above 10% and then run, 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 run out of control, right? But if we can exclude that scenario, which seems to be the case, if we can go down to 4 or 5%, you just let it be, and that's a much better outcome for everybody. So, so, so Vincent, I have to ask the question. I mean, you said it's, you're negative on equities broadly, but you mentioned the sectors you really like. Well, what, the explicit question, I mean, um, inevitably, I have to ask you the pointed question. Doesn't that make you very bearish on the bond market? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been a bond bear for, for a long time. And my, uh, I'm less of a bear right now because the, uh, 
the front end has repriced very attractively, right? I mean, if you look at a, you know, 4.7% on two year, I mean, not bad, man. You know, if I look at stocks, I mean, stocks trading for 20 times forward earnings, uh, which don't look all that great. And then like, well, you know, I can get like almost 5% with a 12 month T bill. Uh, you know, same thing with tips, you know, you can get like 1.5% real yield on tips. Uh, so they are, there are limit, small parts of the bond market. That I like, I, I like Brazilian bonds. Uh, you have uh, to me like tremendous, you know, I think Latin America will buck the trend when it comes to, to bond market returns. This is a place where you see inflation. But, 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 yeah, but, but, but Vince, if you take a look at say the U S 10 year at 380 or the Bund. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, aren't, wouldn't you, wouldn't that lead you to be very bearish on, on, on yes. assets? Yeah, 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 correct. No, my, my, my forecast is that at the end of the, the process, you should be looking at uh, maybe five, five and a half percent on the tenure uh, to reflect. So, so, so I have a friend who's short a lot of uh, long duration equities, loss making companies, Kathy Wood type stuff, Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. What should I tell my friend? Uh, you said he's short, right? He's short. Should I tell him to cover his shorts or you think he's okay? No, no, no. Just, just keep going. I mean, this is, I, I mean, on a lot of this stuff, I see strong support at zero, honestly. I mean. <laughs> 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 oh, 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 all right. Nas, you got a quick follow-up? Otherwise, I want to go to Phi Kappa. Oh, I'll, I'll stay with my hand up. I've got a follow-up question, but go to the uh, other uh, people first. All right, yeah, all right. Let's go around her. All right, let's, let's go to Phi Capital, and then we're going to go to uh, Rectober. And then uh, Anika, and then Stefani. I guess he's having problems with the app. So, uh, Phi Capital, good to see you again. What's up, man? Hey, good evening, George Noble. Uh, you know, thank you for your space. Uh, thank you for the time that you provide to the community and all the value you provide. I've learned a lot from you, and you know, finally getting the courage to come up here and talk uh, amongst you gods. And uh, Vincent, I agree with you. Um, the energy play is uh, quite obvious, you know, in terms of supply and demand. It's kind of a no-brainer. And I, I agree with you also that the healthcare sector, because uh, I personally worked as an automation engineer, uh, making a lot of these uh, automation solutions for these OEM uh, health companies. And it's just bustling, man, orders after orders. And, and you know, new products always uh, being developed and released. And uh, I see all the, the new glucose uh, delivery technologies and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's a good play, too. I, I just want to pick your brain about, um, you know, you were talking about the broader economy and the dollar dominance and all that kind of stuff um, with, with these governments now trying to uh, onboard us in, into this world of CBDCs, these digital currencies. Um, how does that uh, fit into your like investment perspective and long term uh, kind of uh, thesis um, in terms of uh, how, how the dynamics are going to change once we're all on this uh, infinitely expandable digital currency? Uh, thank you. Um, thanks for the question. I'm, I'm not a specialist of, you know, anything crypto or CBDC related. Uh, so forgive my, uh, you know, I'm going to answer from a very uh, high level. You know, I, I think there's just a lot. I don't think it's going to change all that much. I mean, you know, the, the dollar, the euro is already digital. I, a lot of the CBDC initiative, when I, when I look at them, like, it, it seems more like a, a, a gimmick, like, oh, everybody's talking about crypto. I guess we should, do doing, we should be doing our own thing. But effectively, you know, the, 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 yeah, the, the dollar and the euro is already a digital currency. Uh, now, whether you 
you know, encrypted on the blockchain or on, on the Fed or the ECB's balance sheet is, is kind of trivial. I, I don't really see a, a, a very strong use case for them. Uh, so I don't think it's going to change the world. Thank you for your time. Excellent. Okay, we now go to uh, Recto Burns and then Anika. Recto Burns, please unmute yourself. George, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak again. Uh, Vincent, I, I just have a quick question for you. Um, going back to what you mentioned regarding productivity, um, you know, coming from the financial services sector, I'm here based in Washington, D.C., worked for as a tax manager for a 501c3, uh, get this, with close to $70 billion in assets under management. Um, Investing in over 100 markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I no longer work there. However, what I did notice in, in the environment, you know, having worked there for about 10 years or so, was the difference between the pre-COVID environment to the post-COVID world and working with, say, you know, we, we had uh, interactions with some of the big banks in the business, JP Morgan and so forth. Um, and we, it was incredible to see the level of service. It, it, it was, it was awful just getting through the bureaucracy, say, you know, the Philippines, then worrying what's going on in Germany and Finland with all the tax changes they were making at the time to accommodate for COVID, all the inefficiencies of bureaucracy, the IRS is backed up on say what, what we use in the tax world called the 6166 certifications for tax residency purposes or tax benefits when you're dealing with double taxation treaties with other countries, et cetera. Um, it was crazy to see so much inefficiencies in, in, in the workforce in general. I think it was, it's been understated at, 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 at the very best. I think the effects that it has had on people, um, for example, in, in my case, we were a team of about eight people. Uh, within a span of a year to two years in COVID, uh, we lost about 50% of, of our team. So we went from a team of eight people to down to three people, a skeleton crew. And I can't wonder or imagine that, you know, it's probably happened in, in many other places, in many other firms across all industries. And have we really considered the impact this has had on, on the economy or the externalities or the costs associated with that? Um, I guess that's my main question. And then, you know, yeah, so, so Rector Burns, let's kind of like tie this down a little bit. So, so what exactly is the question? You made a lot of good points. What's the question you have for Vincent? I guess the question is, is it that, is it that, um, is it so hard to believe that productivity is in fact down as a result of COVID and as a result of all the changes that we've had to endure, um, psychologically, you know, just besides the markets, just overall in, in right. all aspects of life, um, <laughs> All right, so so yeah, so Vincent, so it's not just you know what's happened to productivity, but also what's your outlook for productivity going forward? Uh, yeah, yeah, and I've got to follow up to that. So the, the question is productivity, Vincent. Yeah, no, thank you for for sharing that. And the question, I, I, I can really relate to the experience you shared because I, I think this is some something that we all feel, but we don't realize that everybody else is feeling the same way, right? I mean, you could talk to you know a tax accountant. Uh, 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 airlines, airline stewardess, waiters, um, uh, people doing customer service, they will all tell you the same story, thinking it's just them. No, it's not just them. I mean, 
things are not working. Uh, people are burned out. COVID added a bunch of bullshit to pretty much everything. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's you, 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 you say it right. It's a negative productivity shock. I, I remember there was this debate at the beginning of the, the COVID lockdowns. Like there was this view that it was going to unleash a new era of productivity because, you know, we'd all go online. Man, Zoom, Zoom is a piece, you know, it's a piece of garbage software. I mean, you, you could do like, you know, Skype has existed for 20 years. I mean, like, <laughs> like there was no, this was not like the invention of the combustion engine that would transform the way, um, decouple the, the amount of output we could do with labor. Uh, so I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I, I think COVID has been negative for productivity. It's been a huge drag on, on workers themselves, on their body, on their minds, on their, uh, their efficiency and also their attitude, right? Because, you do two, two years of this crap and you're like, I, I don't give a shit anymore. You know, I, I don't want to deal with that. Like, I think that's, that's kind of the mindset of, of my generation or the, the, the you know, silent um, uh, great resignation or, or silent, silent quitting, right? I, I don't want to go the extra mile because nobody cares. So this is part of that more behavioral aspect of, of my case where I, I, and that's what pandemics do. Like after epidemics, they, they change people's relation to work. Uh, and people had time to think about what they want out of life. And, and, and I think this is kind of a structural change. So the quick answer to your question is yes. And, and you see that in the data, by the way, if you look at unit labor costs in the second quarter, they were up by 10%. 5% was higher wages and 5% was lower productivity. And if, if you really push the implication of that, that's very consistent with my case because it means that we could have maybe a recession in the NBER sense you know, meaning falling GDP, but a labor market that remains very tight if we are less productive. So let's say GDP falls by 2%, but productivity falls by 4%. That means you need 2% more worker to produce that lower output than you had before. So you can have a recession and no real uh, loosening of the labor market. And as a result, no loosening of inflationary pressure. So, so it's kind of so a Yes, yeah, so let me take that as a jumping off point to, to a... I think even a bigger point, and I agree with you. Um, your idea that not really caring if literally the MBER says we're in a recession or not a recession. We're all here in this room. I think primarily we're market animals. We're trying to figure out what's going to happen to asset prices, and more important than a definition is what's actually going to happen to corporate profits because profits is one half of the equation, the other half being valuation. And the scenario you're outlining is near and dear to my heart. It happens to be my view as well. And that is in a world where labor uh, pressures uh, remain. And let's say that, you know, some of the commodity prices come off, you know, the used car prices and this and that and everything else. Seems to me you're looking at a, you got the, all the makings of a pretty good margin squeeze. Uh, not to mention, of course, you know, uh, higher interest rates, rising tax rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So whereas um, you've seen this tremendous expansion of profit margins in recent years, a huge shift in, uh, in returns uh, from, um, uh, from the laborers to the rentiers to that, uh, I think I pronounced that correctly, Vincent, you, you'll, I, you'll, you'll correct me if I didn't, um, that maybe we get the opposite. And maybe what you're talking about, obviously the valuation side of the equation, you spoke on you know, what's gotten to bond yields, that's not helpful for valuations, but... The scenario you're talking about is not good, particularly good for profit margins either. It may be, maybe they 
go up in real terms. Maybe they go up in nominal terms. Maybe they don't, but they go down certainly in real terms. So what would you say about is your outlook for corporate profitability in the world that you envisage? Yeah. Um, one thing I'll mention about the, the rise in margin. So I think we hit the all-time high on S&P 500, a little bit about 13% less. Um, if you break it down, more than two-thirds of that was because of big tech. If you look at profit margins outside of big tech, you know, it hasn't been as, as spectacular. And uh, I don't know, the big tech stuff was really to me to just, you know, margin transfer, like profits that used to be uh, captured by uh, advertisers, uh, TV stations, uh, media, whatever, that just got sucked in into these big tech companies uh, that were able to do it with, with less cost because it's, it's more scalable. But it doesn't strike me as like, um, you know, a true productivity gain the way, again, the combustion engine was. Uh, there was an aspect that was almost illusionary from, from the rise of these big tech margins. Uh, a lot of that was also hidden because of the, you know, they pay their employee in stock, right? So because the stock price was inflated, they were able to kind of hide about half of their true costs and compensation, at least on a cash flow level, by, by issuing stock. So I, I think there was already a level of that margin expansion that, that was a little overstated, and, and, and that's, that's being fixed right now. Uh, if you look at big tech's margin, uh, they, they are down six percentage point uh, from the high. Uh, and and you, you've seen that the results, I mean, it was bad across, with the exception of Apple, pretty much all big tech disappointed. And that kind of reminds me of what happened in with financials in after wait, right? I mean, if you remember in 2004, 2008, we had a tripling of financial profits. I think a third of S&P 500 profits came from financials. And then that just deflated because it was just an illusion. Uh, so yeah, my, my outlook on margin is negative. Uh, and um, I would argue that's a good thing. Uh, you know, for, for 40 years, we had expanding margins. We had the owners of capital make out at the expense of workers. Uh, and we reached to a point where it's no longer sustainable because at the end of the day, your, your workers are your consumers, right? So if, if, if the margin becomes 100%, theoretically, consumption falls to zero. So there is a, a natural mean reversion to margins also because of competition, but also, well, competition is one area that's kind of lacking in the US. But I think we, we got to the point where it could not go on any further. Like we had this process of concentration of wealth, uh, you know, the top 1%, all that stuff, uh, that reached its, its natural limit, which was we killed demand. That was a problem in the 2010s. Like we could not uh, re-stimulate the economy because the bottom did not have the means to consume. Uh, so in a way, and gets me back to my point, this is healthy. This is the economy trying to right itself. If you are a virtuous policymaker, which may be a, 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 an oxymoron, uh, you don't want to fight this. You actually want to accompany this. You want to manage this. You want to make sure that this great rebalancing happens in a way that doesn't break things. D'accord. D'accord. All right. Uh, we're going to do Anika and then uh, Stefan. Anika, please unmute yourself. Thanks, George. And uh, thanks for hosting this space. And it's been a pleasure listening to you, Vincent. Um, it's, uh, you know, I just wanted to mention you uh, raised the point that so far, you know, with the Fed hiking, we've seen three of these bubbles burst. We've seen MAME, MAME stocks, you know, the MAME stocks bubble burst. We've seen crypto 
explode with the FTX uh, saga. And we've also seen, you know, overpriced real estate stocks now coming off. Um, yesterday, we got this data about uh, credit card balances, um, you know, rising 15% year on year, which was like the highest in 20 years uh, for in the US. And I was just wondering if household debt could be the next bubble, because as you mentioned, and I agree with that, the Fed is going to keep going because that's what they want to do. And they and they can, they are in a position to do so. So do you think that's like the next bubble and that could exacerbate the recession? Um, eventually, yes, but, but not yet. Um, okay. Again, it's a flow versus level argument here, which um, if you focus on the flow, like, um, you know, a, a new credit uh, or savings rate, for example, it's horrifying, right? You see the savings rate plummet to like 3%. You see people putting stuff on the credit card, all of that, I agree. But keep in mind where we're coming from. I mean, we're coming from a historical period of accumulation because of the lockdowns. So if you look at your, your uh, total debt balance uh, for uh, the, the retail, the household sector is actually quite low. Uh, people paid down the credit card debt during COVID. Uh, the student debt has been canceled, or at least, you know, will seems to me that it's going to be postponed forever. Uh, the auto, the car loan, remember everybody freaked out about car loan two years ago? That's gone. Uh, so, yes, now it's buying, right? A lot of people are facing these high prices. Wages are not necessarily keeping up, and they have to put it on a credit card. But they have room. They have the capacity to take on more credit before you start to see delinquencies. They're very different from 06 or 07 when, you know, people were really leveraged to the max and, and just like increasing the, the, when the Fed started to hike rates and the arm reset, it threw everybody in the red. We're not there yet. Uh, so I think we can, we can relever for maybe a year, maybe two before we start seeing problem in the consumer. And if I'm right about my labor market outlook, I you will not see a, a, a pickup in unemployment and we continue to see strong wage growth, maybe this can keep, keep going even longer. And, and you see that, by the way, if you look at the banks' earnings and, and loan loss provision, they are not, at this point, worried about the consumer uh, or, or loans going bad. If anything, it's, it's the sweet spot, right? It's where, you know, where people are late on their credit card bill, but they still pay it. So for banks, it's fantastic. So to me, this is kind of an argument to be tactically overweight financial, maybe not in long term, but maybe for the next six months, uh, this is a sweet spot, right? Where you can sell more product and you don't have to, to deal with the consequences of, of the credit bubble you created yet. Thanks for that question. It was a great question. Okay, next we're going to go to my friend Stefan. Uh, Stefan's in uh, Germany, always a sharp cookie. Stefan, good to see you. What's on your mind, my friend? Please unmute yourself. Hey, George, how are you? All good. It's uh, late where you are. What's going on? Uh, maybe we should first um, thank you, Speaker Pelosi, one of the biggest traders for the past 50 years, retiring at 120 million net worth, doing a lot of great trades. Um, no, beside that fun. I heard a lot of um, past uh, thinking with Vincent talking about healthcare and energy. I would be interested in what are the three most profitable trades for the next six months? That would be my question for tonight. Thank you, George. Um, thank you, Stefan. Well, I, as you mentioned, I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi is retired, so it's a lot harder. I, 
won't be able to follow her uh, <laughs> her, her her trades because she had a pretty good track record there. No, no, Vincent, she's gonna start an ETF. <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> it was a bad joke. I'm sorry, Vincent. Um, <laughs> 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 you're gonna start an ETF. You're gonna have her own. Discord room for 90 bucks a month with a trading service. Sorry, but but I'm laughing since one hour and uh, and it's really <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs> anyway, all right, <laughs> all right. On a more serious note, you want three trades. Yeah. Three trades, okay. Yeah. Uh, w- one, I'm, I'm, uh, I think Brazil is going to be uh, like a meme stock uh, next year. Uh, both equities and, and, and bonds. Uh, you have the, the perfect macro setup. Uh, this is a country where inflation has rolled over, uh, where you will actually see a dovish pivot, where you have positive real rate by 6%. Uh, now we have the election behind us, and it was, a, I think, a pretty good outcome. Uh, in the sense that, you know, we're going to have a civil war, uh, but Lula is not going to, you know, he's, he's going to have some constraint around him. Um, so uh, now, now the, the, the central bank will be able to cut rates. Uh, domestic consumption has been repressed for, for 10 years now, but it, it's, it's there. You also have, I think, a flood of money coming from Europe uh, and Japan. So uh, I would view Brazil as my highest conviction call for the next uh, 12 months. I mean, with Brazil, it's always a... Uh, it's always a trade, never an investment, right? So, but it can, it, it can be a good trade, and I think this is one of these times. Um, that's one. Uh, second idea, I, 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 I'm, I'm starting to get excited about gold again. Uh, you know what, what we've seen in the past uh, month or so, uh, the collapse of crypto, uh, the, uh, and then if I'm right about the, the, the dovish people in in 2023, meaning the Fed accepting high inflation. Uh, that would be very, very uh, bullish for gold. Uh, and, and finally, to me, it seems that gold seems to sniff stuff out. You know, it sniffed the rate hikes before. It's, you know, like, it's always acting with a six to 12 month um, uh, lead versus the economy. So pay attention to what gold is doing. Gold is trying to tell you something about next year. Uh, either it's some geopolitical stuff that's going to be ugly or it's going to be kind of the, the the, the big reflation trade, weak dollar. Uh, so that would be uh, number two. Uh, and then you want to do three things. Um, going with the Holy Trinity thing, I'm, I'm excited about regional banks in the US. Uh, if I'm right about the labor market being stronger than people think, uh, leverage not being a problem yet, uh, yield curve steepening, um, you know, you want to be with regional banks, like not not crazy stuff. Like I'm not talking the you know the Goldman Sachs or the Credit Suisse, where you know you have a very volatile trading investment banking. No, just just plain old boring banks that take deposits, make loan. They pay zero on the deposit. They get five percent by by leaving their money at the uh, you know uh, with the Fed. I mean, it's pretty easy to make money uh, in such an environment. And, and and they're very cheap. Like we, we financials, you can you know get them for less than ten times earnings, and usually around you know one or one point one times book value. So um, yeah, Brazil, gold, and then regional banks. 
Vincent, you know what strikes me? First of all, I happen to agree with you. Secondly, um, the vast majority of investors um, just take index funds, and most portfolios for that matter, are so unprepared for the world you're talking about. I mean, we should get O'Hare to come on up here. O'Hare, you should raise your hand. So, oh, Vincent, if you look in the third row over on the right, um, the crazy guy with the is inflation dead. That's the that's the Business Week uh, magazine cover you were talking about. Um, I think he shares similar views to yours, but it just strikes me, Vincent, that you know your portfolio reasonably good chance of doing well, but it doesn't it doesn't speak well for the general market. And um, I'm a big believer in, the, in, in that we're going through a regime change, and I don't mean it to, to turn into an echo chamber, but I happen to agree with your views uh, completely. But Gnostic, did you want to follow up on that now? I, I think um, we've, we've kind of come full circle. Gnostic, you want to mute yourself? Oh, I was just bugging O'Hare to come up. You know, wake up. Come on, O'Hare. Wake up. O'Hare, come on. We're, we're, we're calling your number, man. This is this is playing your song here. Right to speak. Uh, yeah, and, no, it's been, been good listening to you. At, and my primary question here is, where can I follow you? Where's the best place to see what you're writing and what you're doing? Uh, mostly the questions I have have been answered and or are now secondary to some of the discussion that's been here. And I'd like to keep following you. Well, thank you. Um, so Twitter is a is <coughs> always a, a good place. Uh, I cannot post everything, obviously, because I, uh, you know, I, I write uh, institutional research for institutional investors. Uh, but I, I do try to be active on Twitter. I was I was very fortunate to to have met some very smart people on Twitter who, who, who were patient with me and, and I, I tried to do the same thing. I, I benefited from, from this platform. So I'd, I'd like to, to give back. Uh, and then as far as my, uh, my regular job goes, um, so I'm the global macro strategist for StoneX. Um, we are a very large broker dealer. We've got a, a fortune 100 company. So if you are trading with StoneX, just get in touch with your, your sales rep and ask, Hey, I want Vincent stuff. And then, and, and then we'll make it happen. And either way, uh, you can also, uh, you know, send me a DM. Always happy to chat there. And then finally, under my bio in Twitter, my pinned tweet, there is a link where you can register for a free trial of my research. Uh, so you'll get the weekly reports uh, that way. And hopefully, um, we have solutions also for, I mean, it's primary institutional product, but we work with retail investors as well. That's great. So we've got uh, one of the sharp, uh, technicians in the room. We've got uh, Dave Nikoski is right next to you, Vincent. So Dave, um, I don't know if you had a question for Vincent. I'm going to throw a question to you, David. Namely, um, from a technical perspective, I'm just kind of curious um, how gold, Brazil, and regional banks, the three trades that Vincent likes from here, as well as the structural stuff, he still likes energy, still likes healthcare, but is, is an answer to Stefan's question about, you know, what are his three best ideas? He mentioned Brazil, gold, and uh, regional banks. And then we'll throw in we'll throw in healthcare and energy as well. Uh, how do those look to you, Dave? Yeah, well, as you know from a number of our conversations earlier in the year, I was extremely bullish Brazil. After the elections, I pulled back a little bit and said, you know, I need to see how this shakes out. Um, I would agree with every assessment, and at least from some discussions I've had with others on Brazil, at least, you know, you are seeing that Lula's hands are, will probably be more than tied to accomplish the things that his overall goals are. So I, I think that, you know, we need to see some stability um, in terms of the price pattern chart. I mean, it, it has been a standout leader, you know, from 
the March time period or so, you know, it way outperformed the U.S. markets considering, you know, what what our markets look like. So I would agree with that. I mean, technically, I want to see some stability. I mean, the Brazil chart is all over the place right now. And, you know, I've said in the past that, you know, interest rates at 13.75 percent and they have somewhere around 7.8 percent inflation, you know, I think they get a stranglehold on it, but they need to bring bring the uh, uh, you know strengthen the the real because it's it's starting to weaken again. But to me, it looks like a major top in the long period, long term charts. Um, regional banks, I mean, have been doing much better than than a lot of the larger cap banks. Um, you know, I, I do like them, um, but I. I you know, it comes down to if we get some stability in, in the long bond, you know, we, we saw a nice rally. I saw mortgage rates came down the largest ever in history this last week, to give you an idea uh, of the rally in the 10-year. Um, but again, it, I, I, I would agree with the assessment. It's just the timing of it. Um, you know, we prefer industrials. Um, lots of bottoms in retailers. Macy's had a move above the 200-day um, you know, it's 70% of the economy. If I see the, re- you know, the consumers starting to, uh, strengthen, I'm not a big fan of, of everything there. Um, it is pick and choose. So what was the third question? I think it was gold. I believe the last oh, one gold. I am bullish. I mean, you have a head and shoulders bottom, uh, on the, on the minor stocks. Um, I am bullish. I do think the U S dollar is topped. Uh, I do think you are seeing a repatriation. You saw Japan sold, uh, you know, close to a trillion in U.S. treasuries. Um, so you are seeing repatriation. Um, I've mentioned that on number of calls for the last few months. Historically, when you get the dollar to levels where we've seen, however, I do want to caution, for instance, in April 2002, you saw uh, the U.S. dollar after forming a, a top that took almost, you know, three years in the making. When it did break, it took the U.S. equity markets with it. Um Foreigners will sell what they own. At that time, it was the S&P stocks across the board. So, you know, and I I believe it's more of the velocity of the decline of the dollar more than it's topping out and peaking. Um, But to me, it looks like the U.S. dollar is peaking. You know, we can get a rally to 109.50. There's some resistance there that I I think would be justifiable. Um, but you know, if we get, if we get some type of panic in the equity markets, I'm sure you're going to see people move to the dollar once again. It, 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 Dave, as long as I got you there, one yeah. corollary question, uh, name me, name me the U S long bond. What does the TLT look like to you? Well, you, you broke in one, you know, one downtrend on the shorter term. Um, you know, as a technician, we like to see something other than a V reversal. I, I like to see a pullback and a higher low. Um, I, I think would distinguish whether or not we've made the lows. Um, I, I think the Fed is on a path to bring all asset prices down yet. And, you know, if history proves out, you know, it, 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 you, you typically get a bottom well after the Fed starts cutting uh, because the, then the damage is done. And I think you need apathy in this market. You know, you don't get seven percent rallies on the nasdaq you know I, I i saw the list of the largest rallies on the nasdaq in history i think there was 11 of them in 2000 to 2003 10 of those were within seven months of the top to give you an idea you know so i don't want to see the, the more this market rallies the more we're going to see some very hawkish statements from the fed 
Right. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Thanks for that, Dave. Yeah. Maybe it's can I can I conclude because it's already twelve yeah. p.m. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank you, George, for yeah. for all for doing all the things you did in the last twelve months. I was here, I think it was three months ago, and I said oil is a short. Yeah. And I completely stick to that. I I think that when what we have seen in the last seven days in FTX, there's another scam pyramid in oil. And when this scam pyramid from the Arabs collapses, oil will immediately go to 70. So you can borrow oil here and you invest it into what Vincent said or others for the next six months. And you will make a nice arbitrage in shorting oil, investing in great companies, equity. And I think... This trade can make 50%. The other trade I, I am in is long solar. I think that solar wind companies, when you block the Chinese, when you are able to, to get, let's say, the Chinese production costs at 20% of the Western world under control, which on, on the one side finished the German solar industry in 2007, on the other side, which is currently very good, managed by the U.S. Uh, government. I think that the solar and wind sector has a very bright future for the next six months, too. So this is like what I said three months ago. I think oil is a great short here. Look at the solar wind companies. They all released favorable Q3 figures in an environment which was okay. Think about if the solar and wind environment gets even more favorable for these companies you have seen negative comments from muddy waters from from diogenes um, uh, from from the short seller that they are short solar names i think that's something which which i like which you also can see in my recent twitter tweets and thanks george for your work and thanks for the spaces and and have a good night here from from the black forest in germany it's definitely always good to hear please please Back. I, I, I love I love I love your commentary. So th thanks for all that. Um, all right, so we're gonna. All right, so let me set up an order here because I got a bunch of other speakers. We're gonna do. Uh, oh, here I've never seen a guy change <laughs> avatars as quickly as you do. I love it. <laughs> this is awesome. So the the guy with the crazy rock, oh, Vincent, the guy with the crazy rocket ship that's up at the top. He was the one with the Business Week cover just a little while ago. But he's mad. He's like Clark Kent. He just changed his costume. So. We're going to do O'Hare, and then we're going to do AELB. So, so, what's up, O'Hare? What's going on, guys? What's up, man? I'm uh, I'm just listening in on yeah, this so conversation. Did, yeah, so yeah. Did you pay I'm, – I'm teasing you now. Did you pay Vincent? Yeah. He was talking your book, man. I mean, I, I gather you probably are largely in agreement with what he had to say. Yeah, you know, I largely. Uh, I, I'm not in agreement uh, on uh, – well, the, the, the whole Brazil trade, I agree with him. I think it's a trade, not an investment, and I'm not inclined to invest in, in Brazil just simply because, you know, when the U.S. Uh, catches a, a cold, everyone, uh, everyone else catches, a, you know, a flu. So I, I would just be careful investing in overseas markets, you know, like Brazil. I, I think it might be a trade, but uh, I have no interest in doing anything there just simply because, you know – Things are slowing down here, and uh, I do agree with them on gold. Uh, as you know, uh, I've been, you know, we've been pretty bullish on, on gold for quite a while. Uh, specifically, miners. I, I, I think there's an opportunity there uh, for many of the reasons that he stated, and I think uh, 
I think energy. I think energy is a fantastic place to be right now. Um, even now, I think refining, uh, specifically, like if you look at the refining space, I think uh, I think that's a place to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, I largely agree. I think banks. When he said banks, I'm like, oh my god, banks. I mean, we've been. If I were short, I'd be short banks right now, and we don't short. But if I were short, I'd be short banks. I think the banks going to have a lot of problems um, now. Having oh here on the banks, is your caution based yeah. on credit quality concerns, or what, 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 what's your caution based your concern? Mainly credit quality concerns, correct? Yeah, I think uh, this talk about the net interest margins. I mean, I, I I do agree with him on the regionals and the smaller community banks. I think there might be some opportunities there. I live in California, so I there are a few banks here that are doing quite well. Um, I would stay away from money, you know, the large money center banks. Uh, he mentioned, you know, you know, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Those, those, those kind of banks, I would definitely stay away from. But, you know, I, I think uh, there are some opportunities with the smaller banks. But, you know. Listen, if we do go into a slowdown, uh, you know, a lot of these smaller regional banks, you know, they're CNI banks, you know, they're they're lending to small to medium sized businesses, construction and industrial. And those sectors are not going to do very well. So, you know, if we have a slowing economy, I think, uh, you know, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical on the whole uh you know, uh, f- f- finance space. Uh, specifically so, oh, so, 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 so here, let me ask you this. I know you like the gold. I know you like. The energy you generally like uh, inflation. Consumer staples. Yeah, Consumer staples. staples. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you you spoke about fertilizer stocks in the past. I mean, you have kind yeah. of a very much of an inflationary bent to your uh, portfolio, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I agree. I think I think we're gonna. And what he said was interesting because I haven't heard very many people talk about this, but I think the Fed, I think the first step's going to be. And as you know, we've talked about this. I've tweeted about it a lot. I think they're going to raise their inflation target. You know, for you know, they, they have this 2% nonsense number they've had for a long time. I think we're going to three and a half, four percent 4%. I think that's going to be their, their, their you know, that's going to be their first uh, modus operandi. You know, so it, I, so I, I agree with them on that. You know, it's interesting you make that point because uh, I was listening to Vincent in the other podcast that he did, and they actually brought up the subject. I'm sure there's some Sharpies in this room who'll know exactly what I'm about to mention. Someone asked him, um, where did this 2% number come from? And it was a number of years ago. I think it was some New Zealand banker or somebody. Someone just blurted it out. It wasn't like handed down as one of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So it's not cast in stone. And so, you know, he was making the case that that they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna punt on that. Uh, you know, when we get into the early part, of, you know, sometime in the spring next year. So it makes a lot of sense. It's not codified. They could easily move the goalposts. Um, yeah. So, by the way, you ran a space the other day, and uh, I was just listening in. I wanted to come up, but I was in the gym working out. But I was just going to tell you, you guys were discussing some of the, uh, you know, the arcs of the world, the the, the electric car company that shall not be named. Uh, and I, yep. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, you know, if Arc was smart, Arc has about seven and a half billion in assets right now. A R K K, that specific ETF. Uh, if they were smart, they'd take uh, about five percent of that, or roughly, call it three hundred fifty million, and put it into a nope, you know, as a hedge. That's what I would do. <laughs> You know, and I'm not kidding. I, mean, I did not. Literally, I did, they literally oh, here, oh, you're in the federal witness prediction program. I see you change your avatar again. <laughs> you speak. <laughs> How do you do this? You're you're quick. You're good, man. All right. I, I don't know this guy. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't, I, it's not a paid endorsement. All right. By the way, this, this, uh, by the way, this, uh, what Vincent said about the, uh, the cover where he got the initial idea for inflation. Yeah. I, I, this picture that I have for my avatar, which is, he's, the, this is the one he's referring to, is inflation dead. This, uh, I have this, uh, 
uh, I saved it. When it came out, this Bloomberg uh, uh, Business Week, uh, when it came out, we literally have it at the office sitting at the coffee table in the front room because I just loved it so much. It's, you know, uh, I, I took a picture of it and used it as my avatar from time to time because uh, when he brought it up, I'm like, oh, I got to change it. <laughs> I, I think it's fantastic. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, Thanks. George. Hey. Go. Yeah, yeah, Nikos, what's up? You know, one of the, my concerns on the banks, which I, I think O'Hare is right, and that's why I'm I'm a little reluctant but here, but realize that the 10-year bond or the, you know, the high-yield HYG has outperformed the TLT by, by 25.74% this year. So you're not even pricing in defaults in high yields yet. Right, 100%. 100%. You know, so that is... My biggest concern, I, I think the regionals are, are better than the large cap ones. U.S. Bancorp looks like crap. I find a lot of small cap regional banks that look good and a lot that look bad. You know, it's a 50-50 split. It's not a coordinated, you know, move across the whole spectrum. So, but by, the way, by the way, Nikoski's not asking me to do this, but I'm going to urge everyone to do it. He's a must follow. He also has got a great research product. Um He'll give you a trial, so reach out to him. He's got all types of different products for all types of, uh, you know, from the most sophisticated institutions to uh, the smallest retail investors. So do reach out to Dave. He's a great guy. He's big on relative performance, follows a lot of markets, a lot of industries, gives you a really good glimpse of what's going on in a, in a, in a concentrated fashion. So um, reach out to Dave. I'm sure he'll be able to help you. All yeah, right, let's, thank you, let's move on now to AELB. AALB, it's uh, all right. Now we got another French guy here. I don't know what's going on, or speaks a French accent anyway. AALB, what's up, man? Unmute yourself. Yes, good evening, George. And it's, uh, I mean, again, thank you again. Thank you very much for letting me contribute to the space. Uh, it's quite unfortunate because, I mean, I noticed that uh, Vincent uh, left the space because, I mean, I had, uh, I mean, my question was uh, directed to him because, I mean, we can all agree that the inflation we have here in North America is mainly. It's mainly a demand driven. Uh, in other words, I mean, the private sector has excess cash. I mean, they have excess savings. I mean, the 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 the, the private sector is able to spend its way into existence. Uh, I wanted to have his opinion on the situation in Europe because the fundamentals of surrounding inflation in Europe are radically different. In the sense that inflation in Europe is more of a supply side story. And when you look at the productivity level and productive capacity of, you know, the private sector and infrastructure in Europe, it's a little disaster. And if we if we put Germany aside, and there's also the fact that they have extremely generous social entitlements, that that's the real debt that can that can and never will be paid. So, I mean, given these, uh, I wanted to have his opinion on if we take in consideration these inflation fundamentals, which are radically different from the ones that we have in the U.S., what will be the fix in Europe? Because, I mean, if they go on the same path as the Fed, you know, they will say they just keep on hiking. Essentially, the public, the uh, citizens of Europe are just going to have to deal with and accept with a decrease and a radical, or I should say a radical drop in their standard of living. Not like it was already high in the first place, but uh, I don't know if you see my point. I mean, I just wanted to have his opinion on the fix of this situation, of the inflation situation in Europe, which is radically different than, than here in, in the U.S. Raise a good question. Um, 
he's not here. I don't know where he went. Actually, I don't know if his app blew yeah. up or what. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, you know what happened to him? But um, Europe, Europe's in a much different situation. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think the the, the the import of your question is suggesting a you know not such a favorable answer, and I concur. I think what I think what you're implying, but I, I don't want to speak for Vincent. So. Um, uh, I don't know, Gnostic. You you have a you have a you have an insight on uh, on Europe. I don't. Oh, I I my only insight on Europe is that I'm very nervous. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I just I, uh, I get information and you sit down and look at it, and I get emails from people and other things on a on a individual basis, and I just don't like what I'm hearing, and I can't get enough of a handle. I mean, I would have loved to have, have had Vincent's input on that or, or other people's input on it because I, I just don't, there's something going on there that I can't wrap my hands, brain around, and I'm not not feeling comfortable about it. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, let's move along here. Jeff, I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I think I, are you there, Jeff? I think I just muted myself. Oh, yeah. Hey, George. How are you? Yeah, good. Hey, Jeff. So I was starting to ask you the question. If you're listening to Vincent, uh, he seems to he he was he was talking about how he likes gold stocks, energy stocks, Brazil, some healthcare stocks, some selective financial stocks. So, do you have any views on, um, on any of those groups, Jeff? I like I like all that. <laughs> I like all of that. That all looks um, good. Um, the, the reason I hit you was after uh, you you were asking about uh, uh, bonds, and I absolutely love TLT here, George. Um, I love it because it's making a double bottom or what we in Wisconsin refer to as a W, not a M. And we know that Wisconsin plays Minnesota this weekend. So we know that the W is, uh, is a pretty powerful um, formation. So, And what's really interesting, George, about TLT, to, to me, TLT seems like the easiest trade out there. It, it, it seems like you don't want to own equities next year, but you know what? If the Fed drag, drags us into a recession, which it looks like they're going to do, um, then bonds are going to do awesome, and we're going to see yields drop. And if you just get – what's really interesting is if you do a retracement from the August peak in price, not in yield, to the October low in price, and you do the retracement um, – 100% retracement of that gets you back to 120 on TLT. TLT is at 100 right now. That gets you a 20% return. And if you did it all the way from uh, beginning of the year, January, beginning of January, um, it would get you back to 140. It would get back to uh, kind of like, let's see here. I'm just trying to do December 31st. To now, Hang so, on. Yeah, so, 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 Jeff, so hold on. The bigger point is you. I just letting it lost the numbers. You're you're making a call on bonds. You really like the bond. You really like TLT. Is that, is that what you're saying? Love it, love it, and and especially because now in the last two weeks, you've had you've had two separate Fed people. Today it was Bullard, and last week it was the chairman. The chairman last week in his in his text. If you go back and look at it, you'll see it. He absolutely said, I don't know if we can engineer a soft landing anymore. That is a direct quote. So that means recession. And then today, I'm just trying to get the exact quote from Bullard here. 
he he said it too. It is and what's amazing to me is how the mainstream media just like totally misses that. Oh, so here's Bullard's exact quote. It is possible that increased financial stress could develop in such an environment, meaning now the rising rate environment. That was his direct quote today. And like, I didn't hear a single person talking about that today. So to me, I mean, Gunlock, who I think, you know, has been very early on this, but I think he's going to end up being right. Um, you know, he, he's kind of on that camp too. So anyway, technically it looks great. That's all I'm saying. That's interesting. And so, I mean, I, one of the things I love about technicians, it's, you know, it's, it's great what you see, not what you think, as opposed to yours truly, where you can start with a narrative and then if necessary, turn the chart upside down to support your case. But Jeff, if you were to connect the dots, if you were to just step back for a second and say, okay, you like bonds. I'm just, I'm just playing Jeff back to Jeff. You like bonds. Mm -hmm. You like energy. You like gold. You like Brazil. Um, like, how do you reconcile all that, or 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 or, 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 or that's just what the charts are saying, and, and well, the details will follow the eleven o'clock news because like I'm having a hard time getting my head around the idea that you know Brazil and gold and oil and the bonds are all going to go up at the same time. Well, gold, gold. Here's a really easy argument on gold going up. How long, how big of a move has the dollar had, and if dollar gives back? you know, even a decent percentage of that move, that's going to be a real positive for, for gold. So there's my way to reconcile that, you know, technically. And then on top of it with, uh, with energy, um, you know, we, we've got a screwed up policy. I mean, look, here's, here's the amazing thing. How many people on this call can tell me exactly how much supply we have of diesel right now? That's one of the most bullish things you can say about yeah. the answer is it's 15 days. Yeah. We run out, right? We have a 15-day supply right now. We run out of that. And by the way, George, that causes me to then say, I want to be bullish on uh, the rails. And some of the rails actually kind of look like more like shorts. They've had a good run. But there's a couple of them that have been really kind of pounded into the ground here. Uh, UNP looks great. And CSX both look really good as well. And you can damn well bet. The major corporate guys are not going to let stuff not be moved because of a diesel problem that could materialize um, as time goes on. And um, so that's why I think you got to stay bullish on, uh, on energy as well. And I think, I think the real key thing is everyone should start thinking about next year. And um, we're either this is a one-year event or this turns into an 2000-2002 event or an 0709 event. And I think you could flip a coin on on you know what type of an event it uh, it ultimately evolves into. But I really feel that we're going to evolve into the year of the stock picker. Stock pickers are going to kick ass next year. Um, just look at like the difference between Walmart and Target. You know, it's gonna it's gonna evolve. We're going to evolve into uh, a year of the stock picker in 2023, regardless of how well um, or poorly um the equity markets do makes sense makes sense jeff you got you got any thoughts about uh you don't want to get too caught up in the short run however given the uh, fireworks we saw last week um you know with with uh epic amount of uh short covering i think and, and whatnot given that you sit there and your firm is a preeminent uh firm that follows uh all things related to short selling maybe you don't have the data yet but um, i'm just kind of curious 
what's noteworthy to you about what we've seen in the last week or two? And then looking forward, any thoughts between now and the end of the year? I mean, seasonally, you know, people cite the usual nonsense and so on and so forth. But this is not a normal year. So it is nonsense. Seasonality yeah. is nonsense for this year because we, we have a correlation um, that looks at and compares this year against all other years. And the, be- the best correlation can be is one, which is a perfect correlation. Zero is no correlation. Minus one is inverse. We take the last 15 years, we compare the oldest seven years against the most seven years, say how correlated are they. But then we also look at the entire 15 years and compare it against this year. And everything has like a cycle R of like minus 0.6. So that means like, what is a perfect correlation? Zero, none, minus one is inverse. We're almost having inverse seasonality. So that means like, well, I don't know how well the seasonality is going to end up playing out. And to me, so far, we've had three positive moves this year. We had the March move <clears throat> from the middle of March to April. We had the move that kind of started into June, but it really was more a mid-July to mid-August move. And now we've had this October low to now where we are right now. And um, if you look at the breadth, the breadth improvement is only half of what we got in the, uh, the July into August period. And um, kind of similar to what we got in March, was, which is only like half a month long. The bigger, the bigger deal is um, long short has actually been doing really pretty decently in here um, with the exception of this last week, which was troublesome. But we're not getting continuous positivity out of the weaker stock. So in other words, if this is the true bottom, like we, we had in March of 2009, we should be seeing the weaker stocks kicking ass. And, and we're not seeing that. Um, we had like a four-week period that ended a week ago. So last week, our long short was down like 2.5%. But the prior four weeks, it was up like, like 10%. Um, and it's because a lot of it actually came from the uh, from like the short side. So true bottoms, I don't know if any other technicians buy into this, but I, I 1,000% buy into the idea that the weakest stuff is the best stuff. At, at true bottoms when we end the bear market because people people by human nature think oh i'm getting all this stuff really really cheap and i want to buy it and we don't see that and, and and george what i am worried about still is you know i was worried about it back in uh september which was tax selling coming from the uh, mutual funds which we got and we had a pretty tough fall but i am worried again about december um and tax selling the first couple of weeks of December as well. Um, I have a I have a sub portfolio. I call it the baby in the bathwater, where I went through all the top names and looked at what was weak and sorted by sectors and stuff. And a lot of that stuff still remains really weak. There's no um, improvement technically from the baby in the bathwater stocks. So, so wait a second. So I have a friend who runs an ETF who short some of that crap. What should I tell him? He's he's short. The, the baby in the bathwater stuff? Yeah, the, the garbage. He, he's, still, he's still staying with the cripple shorts. What, what should I tell him? I'd stay with the cripple shorts. Oh, okay. I got to go tell him now. Okay, thanks for that. I think that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look at, look at, look at, like, look at, look at Amazon, how ugly it is. I mean, it's just, it's just not improving. Look at Tesla. It's not improving. Um, I, I They're going to see more tax selling once we get, beyond i mean next week's kind of a joke week and then the week after we start december we have a couple days in november and then a couple days in december and i think 
you want to pay really, and I'll be, I'll be putting a couple things on this on Twitter, but you want to really pay attention to that um, baby in the bathwater um, universe to, uh, to see how it's, see how it's doing. Um, just as a, as a kick, I'll give you in the Dow, here are the baby in the bathwater socks in the Dow. 3M, Dow Chemical, Walgreens, Salesforce, Verizon, Intel, and Nike. Those are all the, the stocks that are still down an incredible amount and it really have not improved enough technically to say, oh, these stocks are now under accumulation. Right. And then, I, and, then, and, and then a lot of the, what about a lot of the junky, I, I can't, she's a gift that keeps on giving. But if you look at, because I, I, know, I, I know you and I talk about it, but if you look at the ARC type stocks, um, similarly, uh, they look similarly, they'll also look terrible to you. Yeah, they look bad. And just ARC by itself, you know, as the entity that sits on top of all the underlying stuff, it looks, it still looks bad. It still is, is troublesome. And, and, and then the electric car company that shall not be named. I mean, I've put it in and out of our port, our model short portfolio a couple of times. And it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, like 10% profit, you know, take it off, rinse and repeat two weeks later when it gets a little bit of a rally, it's, it's being, it's being sold. It's being, it's, it's under distribution. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's fair. Appreciate that. I mean, there's, there's no, there's, there's, and there's some pretty big, well-known, um, you know, names that are, when I, when I go and look at, you know, stuff that's, I mean, look at, look at Domino's. That's a great one to pull up right now. Just, just to talk about like, so look at the rally that this thing had and, um, and look what's happened in the last couple of days. It's just, it's just completely falling apart again. So it went Domino's. Yeah. It, it got down, it got down in the three fifties. It just started, you know, it almost was like three eighty. And now 366, but it's it's still it looks like you can go back to you know 330 pretty easily from here. By the way, let me just interrupt for one second, Jeff. Um, Cantro is listening in, and he he was up here as a speaker, but he's he's in the he's in the audience in his third row. He sent me a message, so I'm going to pass it along. So okay. he has bad reception. But uh, to the question about um, that it's not a true bottom, and because the junk's not bouncing, uh, he says, and I quote wanted to point out that even if the market is going up on pivot hope, the leadership won't look like a typical market bottom where junk works for a long time because the end of a bond bear market is different than the end of an EPS bear market as usual. Brilliant insight from Cantrell. So um, I, lo- I love it when it is a fundamental insight, which go that goes with the, uh, with the technical observations. And, when, when, and, when and George, I, I actually agree with that. Um, yep. One of our research guys, I just had him update it, and I'll put it up on Twitter. But he looks at um, EPS revisions positively, and it's been falling. And we're kind of getting down. We're like maybe halfway down now to where we were at the low in um, 09. Mm-hmm. But we're like t- two-thirds of the way that we were at the pandemic low. And we're kind of two-thirds where we were in uh, 15 um, as well. So that could unfold over the next couple quarters. And then maybe that um, scenario plays out next year. But yeah, I, I agree with him because the, the fundamentals, I mean, you can track fundamentals too. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't have to just track uh, 
you know, a, a, a price of a chart. No, so. for sure. And in, in, in the sweet spot is, is, is when they both come together. Um, so exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, the one, the one, Jeff, thing is, go ahead, go ahead. The one thing is that, that I would love to see is that, um, that EPS, um, revision, and maybe he can run that type of data as well with the resources that he has. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll re I'll retweet it so everyone can kind of see it. And, uh, they threw some other stuff in there as well, like, uh, revenue revision type stuff as well. Um, so you can see that. So, uh, just, just, just since, since, uh, just channeling Maynard Cantor, I mean, his whole point has been, he's been so right that, you know, it's a two-stage bear market. First part is all yeah. multiple, it's all multiple compression. And now we're getting the earnings part of the bear market and the earnings part of the bear market is just getting started. So we've got a long ways to go on this. Um, exactly. I, I agree a hundred percent. Jeff, one question I did want to ask you, cause you, since you're good at, so good at uh, following the shorts, well, we don't have the data. When you look at the price action, the likes of which we saw last week, you know, two days, the Goldman Sachs profitless companies index was up, what, 15% or 25%, whatever, some crazy number. There were some stocks that were up 30, 40% in a few days. I mean, that's not normal buying. No one, no one, no one wakes up. So, oh, you know what? You know, so, you know, uh, William Sonoma was up 30, 30% today. I think I'll buy some. I mean, people, the only people who buy that are people who have a gun to their head. So my question to you is, and this is maybe not so much you can, you can back up with numbers, but it's more um, behavioral observation. When I see stuff like that, like these horrendous uh, or stupendous squeezes, um, you, know, you can never tell how high it's going to go, but it resolves itself pretty quickly. And then once the squeeze is over, the odds of it mean reverting back to where it was before is usually pretty good. I'm just kind of curious uh, what was noteworthy to you about the action last week and what inferences do you draw for the way forward? Okay. That's a good question. Hang on. I'm going to pull up. Um, Cause I like to look at like how heavily shorted names that are underperforming did. And, and definitely last week was. Yeah. 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 yeah Jeff, Cause what happened was let me interrupt while you're looking for, I'll give you some time in the air cover here. They were pointing out like all the quants, everyone had, had, had zeroed in all the factors that have been working, you know, shitty companies, Companies with negative revisions, companies correlated with strong dollar, uh, companies correlated to uh, uh, a falling bond market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, everyone had piled into those things. And so it's like only sort of classic, you know, quant car crashes, which happens every few years. And so, you know, they're forced uh, to cover uh, just because their factors go the wrong way and they got, and the VAR blows out and all that kind of crap. And so, you know, that, that, that stuff, those decisions are being made, nothing to do with price discovery. It's just sort of rules-based. And so the nice thing about that is you can fade that. So I just want to give context to everybody in the room because we've seen this before. It happens It happens from time to time. It doesn't happen the same vigor that it was. So let's roll with this. What, what can we say about that in terms of the way forward? Okay. So um, the last, the week, the week of the 28th, through the 4th, and then the week of the 4th through the 11th, which was last Friday. Last week was the, it was the mother, <laughs> the MF of, of this stuff. The, the stocks that were weak where no one was short, they went up 11.65%. And then the heavily shorted stuff only went up 4.32%. That was where, where the, the shorts were actually losing money. So that was a really, 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 wide uh, spread of like 733 basis points. And then if I looked at where 
the shorts had been where they had been making money, they went up 10.82%. And so the way I like to, to look at it is I call it the, the long short tsunami. We had a really nice period for long short um, from 916 through 1021, where it was, it was pretty decent period of time for making money. And then the week of the 28th, um, the week stuff, no one short went up 6.36. And then remember, I just said it went up this past week, 11.65. And then, um, the threes, uh, so basically, um, where the shorts had been making money, it was 5.63 and then it doubled this last week. So yeah, but it's, but it's kind of done right now. Well, yeah, is- so, 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 so Jeff, just cause you and I know each other for so long, just for the benefit of everybody else in the room, a lot of numbers there. So let's just try to yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to say. Yeah, I know, Jeff. Jeff, yeah. Jeff I told you, left is more. That's all I'm saying. Okay, that's, that's yeah. why I keep talking. So, 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 just in plain English, though, you think the squeeze is done? Is that is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, because if I look at like, so we that that period traditionally, the reason that long short loses money is because the short side goes up at a greater rate than the long side goes up. That is that is like. 85% of the battle in being a long short guy and all that you have to do to do really well and separate yourself from the crowd is to not get caught in those weeks. And this year is pretty typical. We've had, we've had 13 of those weeks this year, what I call the long short tsunami week. Um, last year was 13. So we might get to a higher number, the highest number since 2010 since I've, I've been tracking it was uh, 2016. We had 16 of those weeks. So uh, imagine if you're a long short guy, you're pulling your hair out because the short side is just like, way accelerating typically um, what the long side is doing. Um, and then- Right, the percent- but, 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 but it's, Amy, we'll get to you in one second. But, but, but Jeff, just hang on. Um, so, the hard part is trying to anticipate when these things are going to occur. All right. But once it happens, once it happens, is it easier to have an opinion once it happens as opposed to having an opinion before it happens? Because before it happens, it's kind of hard to know. It's hard to predict when the tsunami is going to come, I, I guess is the question. Mm, it's uh, put it this way. You get to a point where you, you know it's coming, um, but you just don't know th- the exact date. And once you see the first sign of it, then you're like, okay, this is, here we go. Here we go again. So, and, and, yeah. but by the way, how do you, when you say you know it's coming, is that based on like, oh, it's been too easy on the short side lately? Like, like what informs you when you know it's coming? How do you know to prepare? Um, cause I see ex- extremes getting hit, like to your point in, in the data where I, where I can, I'm just like, oh God, here we go. And a lot of it has to do with how many weeks in a row stuff. You know, because the machines know. I mean, that, right. that's the, that's the beauty of this stuff. Remember, okay, okay, you're not, okay, okay. Oh, I get it. okay, okay. So, okay, so that was it. So, so everyone's in the room is going to say, okay, this guy Jeff came on, smart guy, a lot of numbers. I think I understood what he was saying. So, but, okay, so so you know, so, so what's Jeff saying? Like the, the way forward from here, Jeff. What does it look like to you now? So we're back to. Um, so if I look at it this week so far. It's been a good week. I haven't done today's data, but it's been a good week for a long short guy. His his longs are down about 1.66% for the week. But his shorts, whether they be heavily shorted or not heavily shorted, but they're weak and he's making money, he's making 
uh, 2.66 and stuff that's heavily shorted, and he's making 2.10 and stuff that's not shorted. So he's making around a percent for the week so far. So it, it tells me that the, uh, the, the last two-week period has, has gone away. It's, it's almost like the Richter scale, George. Yeah, because my own view, and I'm talking my own book, and again, not investment advice. Everyone should know I'm running an ETF. I don't promote it. So I am sure a lot of this garbage. You can look on my website. My own view, Jeff, is we've had the tsunami. Whether we go straight down or not, I agree with you on the seasonality thing. I mean, there's still more tax loss on to come, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, also, please note, um, you, you know, we, 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 the damage, the car crash already occurred. So I think it's a reasonably good chip, my own view. And I, I, I don't like to predict a short run, but I could see the ingredients coming together where maybe not next week because Thanksgiving week's always good. Who the hell knows? But I could easily see that we get a reasonably, the market could be, this junk could be markedly lower sometime over the next four or five weeks. Would you concur with that? Yeah. Hey, so George, can you pull up a uh, chart? So I want you to be able to look at one chart. I want you to see it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, put, I'll put it in the nest as well. What chart is that? So pull up a chart of, and everyone should do this, pull up B-T-A-L. V Boy, or B? Tom, B? Boy, Tom, Alpha, Larry. Yeah, what is that, Jeff? This this is the um, Quant Shares U.S. Market Neutral Anti-Beta Fund ETF. Right, right. And look, just look at the last three days. Like, they've, rec- I mean, they got crushed last week. Um, but look at the, the last three days including today, the nice kind of pop we've had. We've definitely have come off of it. And so that, I love this thing because whoever's running it knows what the hell they're doing. Because you look at like, um, let's just take DWSH. It, it really hasn't made money now since since June. Um, it's given up a lot of its year so far. But this thing has just, you know, kept clipping away. So I, I like to... Like as much as you can, or someone who does long short, or someone who's short only, you should be tracking uh, several of these against your own stuff, just to be aware of what's going on. So, like as an example, uh, track SH, track PSQ. So those are inverse on the S and P and the uh, the Nasdaq, and then DWSH, and then HDGE, which are actively managed. I mean, I, I, I can throw Nope in there now too, um, into that that category and then this btl is the only one i found that's market neutral um that that i really can glean a lot of stuff from um and that's yeah, why yeah, yeah jeff those are brilliant observations i think you really a lot of people would be helped by a lot of people if you tweeted that out i think it's really good stuff i think that btal in particular it's exactly exactly what we're talking about well <laughs> well one 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 great thing and you know this because you do it and i i did put a tweet up about this the other week um, you know, the fact is there's full transparency on this ETF stuff. So I, I, I'll tell you, um, I, I go into BTAL and run all his, all their names each week to look and say, okay, well, what can I do? Like, like, I know, like, like we do, we do a market neutral short, long, short list every week. And I know I'm going to get killed the week coming in. You know, I'm like, oh crap, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to, you know, minimize the pain that I'm going to take on the, uh, on the short side. So one of the things that I found that's useful is to, uh, to look at the short side of BTAL. I do like to just see what the, the other ones are doing because if they've got a, a weak name in there, the known short, then that ends up, um, you know, being, being a good place to go. Jeff, that's terrific. Um, stay there. I'm sure we'll have some follow-up questions. Um, 
And now, one of the sharpest cookies in the room, and I'm sure she's got some interesting insights. Amy, how are you? How have you been? Uh, what is, what, we're good. What do you? I like your new profile picture, bud. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, any thoughts, comments, reactions about uh, about market? Yeah. Go, go, go for it, Amy. Go for it. I think it was Dave. You were saying that you think the dollar is peaked. Um, CPI is still seven point seven percent, and it's not unobvious that that that, that Powell's been inflating away the inflation, right? So. <clears throat> and then we hear Bullard say he's looking more five to seven percent. Like I'm actually I'm long the dollar through December because I don't think that it's done. And I and I think that they're giving it like a lot of heat came down with you know emerging markets getting real antsy, and I think they're they're giving it a little bit of a rest maybe. But I, I don't think that's finished not not for Powell like I mean that's that's really been what he's relying on I'm not saying that it's a good plan I think it's a terrible plan but I don't think yeah. that it's I don't think that it, it ends yet it, not, no not with inflation being being because we, we see 7.7 right but it's clearly inflation is still in the double digits I'm paying 13 dollars for a box of goldfish for my kids so well, there's no doubt there's inflation there, but you know rates are relative, and it depends on what other right. countries are doing too. So well, if you right. start That's to see them raising at the same rate, right. the disjunct between you know owning the dollar or an emerging country that didn't experience a bubble, right, and doesn't have high high asset prices. That's my view. I mean, right. I I don't know how to like you look at emerging markets around the world. They have been decimated for the last 12 years. We are the ones with the easy money. We are the ones in a bubble. We are pricing stocks on a price sales basis. I haven't found emerging markets doing that. The bubble is here. It is centralized in the United States. It is not outside the United States. Same with March of, you know, you go back to 2000. Same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I believe the dollar can rally on, you know, any... Um, concern about the equity markets because I, I do think that we are not you know we are likely to see the lows or go through it yeah so the the dollar could rally um, you know I just looked at the put call ratio it's at the highest ever recorded going back to I, I think 96 right now mm-hmm. right. So, right. I mean there is if something breaks or breaks up or breaks down it's going to move fast Right. right. So, so, so if we can listen to the dollar, when it, when it does fall, like, I agree with you that it is going to fall and it's going to fall hard. Right. But I don't if, think if, that if, we're there yet. Yeah. Amy and Dave, we can just get away from the dollar if you don't mind, because that's one of the trickier ones. But, but Amy, I'm curious, what do you think? Let's leave the dollar out. I'm just curious, what do you think about the equity market here or, or, or in particular the garbage that got catapulted up so violently? What are your thoughts on that, Amy? I mean, that's kind of where I'm, I mean, like I, I was actually short DLO yesterday before Muddy Waters reported that his short report on it. Um, and there's still a lot of crap. I mean, that was a, a fintech company from Uruguay with a 66 PE or something crazy like that. And it's, you know, if you, if you take a look at, at their, their stuff, it's, it's pretty obvious that it's kind of a scam. So I think there's still a lot of that in the market and I am kind of focusing some of my attention on those. Um, I don't think that we've seen 
the full fallout from FTX as much as they're trying to to hush it down. I think that Silvergate still like that we haven't seen the full exposure from Silvergate. Um, we haven't seen who I mean, as we're seeing in these bankruptcy proceedings, we're seeing that they didn't even have a list of bank accounts for Christ's sake. Like this is a mess, and I don't think we really know what's coming from that. Um, so I, I am my book is is net short um, on on a couple of different. Um, equities, but, you know, I think there's still, equities have been beat up bad and there, there's still some, some room for them to, to some of the equities, some of the good equities have been really beat down and there's some room for them to move. So, and, and grow. So I'm trying to stay long those, try to, to try to weed out the shit. Um, and that's basically where, how I'm, how I'm living. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky market because the stocks that have been doing well, for the most part, and please, I'm sure people can th- give me examples that are going to rebut, refute what I say. But for the most part, and I, it was a tweet the other day, uh, a lot of the more defensive, um, high quality stuff that done well earlier in the year got absolutely destroyed over a two day period. And conversely, the stuff that got absolutely destroyed for the first 10 months of the year, you know, went to the moon in that two day period. So, if you're feeling really good at your performance up until November uh, 9th, you didn't feel too good for the following for the subsequent two days. And conversely, if you were an idiot and we didn't feel too good about your performance up through November 9th, you look like a genius for a couple of days. And so it's just the nature of the market. You know, it's Walter Diemer's old line about, you know, the role of Mr. Market is to confound as many people as possible. So it's not easy. This is, this is not, we all know that this is just not easy, but my own view in the four to worth categories, I, I just went through and looked, just, I just did a simple scream. The stocks were up the most in the prior five days coming into today. And there were more stocks you could shake a stick at that had gone up 20, 30, 40%. And I think a lot of those are going to come back to earth. Um, you're starting to see that already. So talking my book, that's just, that's just my own two cents. Um, I see Jeff is trying to get back up here. Jeff, I'm getting you up as a speaker. Jeff, please unmute yourself. Jeff, can you unmute yourself? Oh, yeah, please? yeah, yeah. So this is a question for both you and, uh, and Amy on this inflation thing. So um, we're going to get into next year. We're going to have a bunch of months in a row where there's going to be really high inflation numbers on CPI, PPI, PCE core. And it's, it's almost like after a really bad stock year where earnings get really easy, we may have easy comparisons as it relates to CPI. But the $64,000 question is, does that type of stuff continue with prices being raised even next year? Like I, I walked in this morning. This is a great analogy, and it gives you a good foundation on how to respond to this. I walked into my, my quick trip here in, in Wisconsin to get my coffee, and uh, I went to pay for it. And they're like, oh, it's $1.99. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it, 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 forever, it had been $1.49. Then they took it up to $1.59. Well, they just went from $1.59 to $1.99. That's a 25% increase. Like, nice land grab there. And so... Jeff, 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 Jeff 100%. Uh, I went, I'll admit to this. I went, this is like, as you don't do this, but in a moment of weakness, like a month ago, I think I was on the highway somewhere, so I stopped at one of these places. And I got, no, it wasn't a highway. It wasn't even a highway. It was rip-off prices. It's just a regular Dunkin' Donuts. I went and got a donut. 
and a coffee. It was like five bucks. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, so it's the same experience you had. And so, Jeff, yeah, the, the, so, I, I want to any, anyone who's transitory or knows anyone who claims to be transitory, if they think the price of your coffee is going to go back down next year, or or are you supposed to feel good now about inflation because it went from dollar forty nine to dollar ninety nine, but now it's going to be flat sequentially for a few months, so inflation yeah. zero. My kid, so, well, my, my, and my I think that's the biggest issue, right? The biggest issue, the reason they've front loaded so hard is because <clears throat> look with inflation being as high as it is they're, they're going they're going to continue to raise prices and that's i think that that's powell's biggest fear right because it gets entrenched and it, it's it, it kind of keeps going so um you know i i i don't know i don't know what the right solution is because okay so if he goes, goes too hard he blows up everything around the world. If he doesn't go hard enough, it gets entrenched. Like it's, I would, I, I don't feel sorry for him because they waited too long, but I do, I don't wish to have their job right now. Yeah. So, so, so like the idea to me, like all of a sudden I started thinking about this after this morning and actually yesterday I picked my kid up from being gone for a couple of days and he had swim practice. He's like, dad, I need the kid eats before he swims and after he swims. So he's like, let's go to Popeye's. And uh, so we do just food for him. And it was just a chicken sandwich, some fries, a drink, and red beans and rice. Can anyone tell me what that cost? Fifteen dollars. $15. <laughs> $15. So I think the real question for next year is we hear about recession and we hear about inflation. I think the big word of next year is going to be elasticity. And specifically of the four types of elasticity, it's going to be price elasticity and who has the staying power and who doesn't have the staying power. And we kind of saw a good example of that with, um, with Walmart versus target, you know, but um, I, I think that, that that's going to be a bigger issue next year. And they're, they're so screwed because of it to your point, but your point's a really great one. It's like, they deserve it because they didn't do what they should have done last okay. year. Well, yeah. and sorry, George, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Amy, go, go for it. Amy, go ahead. I kind of lost my train of thought. All right. <laughs> so you, you go and let me, let me, let me. Yeah, I'll, I'll, run, I'll, I'll run my mouth. Amy. Please interrupt me. Um, yeah, the problem is, as Amy was saying, inflation is a process, not an event. And when it gets embedded in expectations, it gets hard to stop. And that's why on the labor side, think about it. And it's a really good piece. It wasn't written by Vince. It was somebody else recently I was reading about it. As long as the labor market's tight and they have bargaining power, the fact that they've suffered such a, a big decline in uh, real incomes, particularly now I'm talking about the lower uh, part of the socioeconomic strata, the ones where, you know, there's we got a really tight labor market, they're going to play catch-up football. So the fact that maybe, you know, sequentially annualized, the price of the, of the donut didn't go up is irrelevant. All they know is, you know, their income went up 6% and the donut went up 25%. Next year, you got to pay me. I got I to gotta, I gotta play catch-up. So, No. I, I think I think this this in this wage thing, and again, I don't want to get into argument about a recession, not a recession. It's not the point. I want to talk about earnings, and I want to talk about valuation. I want to talk about stock prices. All right. So we come back to the question of wages and what it means for profit margins. All right. As long as labor still has bargaining power, and they certainly do until we get a recession, I think it's a problem. I think it's a big problem for corporate profit margins. So I, I, I still come out on the side of, and then by the way, by the way, I'll interrupt myself. 
<laughs> anybody's guess on oil prices, but you know, some of us think oil prices could go again here, and if they do, <laughs> put put that in your put that in your dividend discount model. I mean, D- D- Vincent was talking about. I don't think it was today, but in another space, he spelled it out more about how yeah, he started to allude to it today. Inflation could come down to, you know, four or five percent by April uh, uh, in the spring because we will have annual we will have anniversaried the big spike in the oil prices, so you have more easy comparisons. So you get inflation down to four or five, but what happens if oil starts going up again? So I'm still a big believer in. You know, the, the the guys who are in the transitory camp, I mean, they've been completely wrong. Completely wrong. And, okay, I remembered. Okay, and they, I don't even have, have the nerve to even stand up in public anymore. Have they no shame? They've been completely wrong and completely discredited. And I'll stay with my story until I'm proven wrong. Amy, you are going to say something? Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> in Powell's defense, I guess we can call it, um, I, I think... I think the goal was to force a recession, right? But the, but the economy didn't cooperate. And because there were less people working there, the, the layoff effect, right, of the things that he needed to happen didn't happen because, you know, companies are like, we already don't have enough workers. How are we going to lay off? And, you know, but they, they eventually have to do it. So that's why they're keeping their foot on the gas. But, I mean, I think for them, they were hoping that we'd already be in to a moderate recession and they could start cutting right and then because the, the the focus is shifting to their balance sheet now right like why have why is there still over eight point something trillion on the balance sheet and i think i think his his idea in theory it was it should have worked but the economy didn't didn't agree with him and so now you've gotten to a point where you raised we've you know, taking a huge shit on emerging markets. The economy is not cooperating. You know, the, the job numbers come in <clears throat> lower than expectations today, which is more proof that people aren't losing their jobs. The unemployment rates are not going up, you know, and it's just sort of beating their head against the brick wall at this point. And I don't know if that means that they alter course and try something different or if they on it and and just go 120 down the highway i i don't know but it isn't working and the economy is not not cooperating so or at least the labor market's not cooperating but i don't know how how far and i honestly to be very truthful i i don't know if Powell has the balls to do it amy i'd agree with that completely by the way amy interrupt for one second Cantro keeps coming up here, but I think the app keeps blowing up. So, Cantro, if you could try to get back up here again, I promise you, as soon as I see you as a speaker, I'll let, I'll let you interrupt whoever's talking. Because you tried to get it. I know you're on a plane. I don't know if you're off the plane now, but um, Twitter is being very uh, uh, very uh, unco- uncooperative today. Amy, I'm sorry to have interrupted. Did you, did you finish no, your thought? I, I just was going to say, until I until... – you know, and that's why they keep saying one month isn't going to do it. One month isn't going to do it <clears throat> because we're seeing the CPI come down. Of course, the, the dollars coming down, all that stuff. Right. Um, but the labor market's not, it, it's really not budging. And until I, like for me, until the economy is more in line with, with the, what the fed is doing. I, I don't think, I don't think we've seen anything yet. 
Not if we're still trading at 4,000. No way. I'm with you, Amy. All right, listen, we've been going for two hours now. I think we're going to, uh, I think we're going to close the room. This has been an unbelievably great, good room. I'm sorry, Vincent. I don't know where the heck Vincent went, but whatever. He was great. Um, so we'll have another space before long. Uh, I've got uh, something really interesting up my sleeve. Um, may have to wait till next week, but it's been a terrific room. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Dave Nikoski. Thank you, Vincent, wherever you are. Uh, thank you to everybody else. This has been terrific. And um, stay safe. Be well. Take care, guys. Have a good night. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye, George. Bye.